This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. We are live on a Monday edition of the Sports Bash here on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. I'm your host, Mike Gill. Josh Henning is producing today's show. You out there? Well, we've got plenty to get into today. Sixers lose, but there's more to the loss than just losing the game. My thoughts on the game and Joel Embiid, by the way, fined $15,000 for his criticism of the officials. That's a whole other topic that we can get into. News on tonight's game regarding a key Raptor right now on our website, 97.3ESPN.com. Phillies lose last night and lose two out of three. They have not won a series since this first series of the season against Oakland. We will dive into that a little bit later. We're scheduled to have Doug Glanville on, who called the games this weekend for ESPN Radio, and he is scheduled to join us at 5 o'clock tonight. He has an event in Philly uh, at University of Penn, which is where he went to school and played baseball. Uh, He called all the games this weekend for ESPN Radio. Hopefully we'll be able to catch up with Doug Glanville tonight at 5 o'clock. The Sixers and the Raptors tonight, game number 5 at 8 o'clock right here on 97.3 ESPN. Latest on uh, the Eagles draft. We're at draft week right now. Todd McShay over at ESPN.com has his uh, latest draft buzz as we get ready for draft week here. And this is the week, Josh. You know it. Uh, we're going to start hearing them slinging the mud all over the place. We're going to start hearing the agents getting their narratives out there. So this is the BS meter week. So I'm going to be reading off some of the what I'm hearing And we're going to try to decipher whether it's BS meter or if we think this is true. Todd McShay has his draft buzz. Everything that he is hearing leading up to the draft. And he's got something about the Eagles in there that's kind of interesting. So all that this weekend, we had uh, the Yankee fans acting like Philly fans because I thought only Philly fans were that bad, right? Nobody else does anything wrong. Nobody could one-up the Philly fans, right? The Yankee fans figured out a way to do it. But I'm only told that Philly fans are the worst. The Yankee fans would never act like they did on Saturday afternoon where they needed actual members of their team to come out and tell the fans to stop throwing stuff. So we got so much on the docket today. uh, But we got to start with this Joel Embiid injury. I mean, I tweeted it out over the weekend. When the news Friday, when I was finishing my show on Friday night, right? about the fact that there may have been, they, they were concerned, there was some discomfort in the thumb, and then Sham Sharania tweeted out that there was fear that it was a torn ligament. At that point, I you know it's a torn ligament, okay? The charade was over. Sham Sharania, a guy of that magnitude, he's not just casually tweeting that Joel Embiid may have a torn ligament in his thumb. He's not making it up. Right. Obviously, he had a torn ligament in his thumb. I got to tell you, when I was driving home from the studio Friday night and your show was on and I'm listening and I'm thinking about the thumb and I just had this deflated feeling. I just had this deflated feeling. And then I saw him play Saturday 
And it wasn't that if you didn't tell me he had an injured thumb, I wouldn't probably have known, except for the fact that he grabs it every other play. He's very demonstrative in that he's letting you know that his thumb is bothering him, okay? But his play itself, I wouldn't be like, eh, there's something wrong here. You know what I mean? It's a pain tolerance thing. He's not the same. He's not the same. And I tweeted this out, and I, I, I stay by it, even after what I saw. I don't think he looked like he was compromised. It doesn't mean he's not. And sadly, I come to you on this Monday, and I hate to say it. I hate to say it because the team is playing well. Embiid has played amazing. He's had an unbelievable season. They're not making a deep playoff run with this version of Embiid. They're just not. He can go out there and gut it out and do what he's doing. and it's just not the same. He's not a hundred percent this team had questions if he was a hundred percent he's not a hundred percent and that question meter just rises i'm usually a pretty positive pretty optimistic guy Mm -hmm. right this hit me bang punch in the gut it was almost like it was building for you like you you went from like one one flag to another red flag to another red flag. Well, listen, I mean, I had some concern about this Raptor series. I thought they'd win the series in six. Um, And look, they might win in five. Ooh, I was off by a game for the people who were like, ah, you said "Ah, I was off by a game. Sorry. Possibly. I don't know. Maybe the Sixers lose tonight. If they lose tonight, then what? Then what's your, your, uh, you know, your thing out there? I thought the Sixers series would go six games. It might go five. Wow, I was off by a game. My concern had nothing to do with Joel Embiid in this series. It had to do with the other guys, the matchup issues. And now you're seeing, I mean, the Raptors' problem is, look, they beat you the other day. They're starting to get healthier. Gary Trent had a big game. Scotty Barnes didn't have a huge game, but they're deeper now. Now they get the dagger. They get a big loss tonight. Fred Van Vliet is out of the game tonight. He will not play in the game. And if it gets to game number six, Van Vliet probably won't play in that game either. I think that's about as tough as a loss that they're going to come across. Because Van Vliet does everything. He's their do-everything guy. Yes, he's the smallest guy out, but he does everything. He shoots, he scores, he can get a bucket, he's a three-point guy. He's really the heart and soul of that of that Raptors team. Losing Van Vliet's tough. But that being said, losing Joel Embiid, not losing Joel Embiid, this version of Joel Embiid, it is simply not good enough. He, it just, you're, It's just simply not going to be good enough. And it's a shame because he was playing at just another level and it's always something, sadly, with him. And I'm not blaming him. I don't even know how he injured his thumb. I guess he dunked and something happened. Well, I think the dunk exasperated what was already an existing issue. From what I've been interpreting from everything is that apparently he already had an issue with the hand. Because he had been wearing that brace thing and practicing and other things for a while. Yeah, but you know what? So you just said that. How many people even noticed that he was wearing something on his thumb? That's my point. 
is if you didn't know that he had something wrong with him, you mm-hmm. wouldn't even know. Like, if you didn't know that he had something wrong, you wouldn't say, man, something's up with this guy. And even watching him on Saturday, I don't think you were like, man, this guy seems compromised. Except for the fact, have you noticed when he goes to give someone a high five, he uses his left, left hand. hand? Have you noticed him on defense? If he can avoid trying Using. to block a shot, yeah. he ain't blocking a shot if he can avoid it. Well, also, like if he can test somebody, his right hand is down, his left hand is up. Right. He's trying to play defense almost left-handed now. So he's not the same aggressive guy around the rim. Now, he said it doesn't bother him as much, you know, shooting. Like, he still has his shot. Apparently, he hit the three, the game winner, with the injury. Correct. So he can still shoot the ball. It doesn't seem to be impeding his shot. Right. But he did acknowledge that when he shoots free throws, that that, that hurts there. When he, um, you know, passes the ball. Well, Toronto is now forcing him to try to pass the ball faster. Correct. And it's a shame. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Look. You feel disappointed. Is that fair? Yeah, I'm not like I'm not mad at Joel Embiid. It's not his fault. I mean, I'm just it's you just feel a little let down. You you felt let like... down. Let down's not the right. Word. I just feel deflated. Like, hey, I thought this team could get out of the second round for the first time, get to a conference final, and see what happens. And with Joel Embiid not being a hundred percent, my my excitement for that happening has lessened. Yeah, because basically now if you're the Sixers, you're hoping for scenarios to help you get where you want to go. Because, one, you got to win tonight. If you win tonight, you theoretically get about five, six days off for Embiid, right? That's the first step. Yeah, but this isn't the kind of injury that, yes, look, I said this the other day. You want to sweep this injury because then you're off. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, six days the earliest that next series could start would be Saturday. Correct. So you would have six days of not doing anything with that thumb. And I don't know that that would help a torn ligament heal it to the to where it needs to get to to help the discomfort. Well, it, it can maybe ease the discomfort. Like, you know, it's like an inflammation thing. Like mm-hmm. if, if you, you know, it's like with any injury. Like, you know, you don't have to be a doctor to know that. You know, you rest something, you start feeling a little better. Sure. I mean, six days of not doing anything, I certainly feel like that would help him out. There's no question. Now having to play tonight, all right, that's cut by two days, all right? I just wish this wasn't a factor. Maybe he can play through it. Yes, he can play through it. Last year he played through the knee. You didn't know. It wasn't noticeable that he wasn't the same, but he wasn't 100%. It was there. You you could tell that there were times that he would do things. It wasn't the same. Look at this right now. Like he's like you said, he's trying to play almost one handed at times. But like I said, there's another scenario that could help as well. Not that it significantly helps, but if the Hawks can make the series with Miami a series, maybe push it to six. Well, seven I think games. their chance was last night. They're at home. They won game three at home. Yep. Now their chance with the hold serve win game four at home they didn't show up last night no they were they were disappeared no they they did not show up i think the sixers and look i'm not blaming the two o'clock saturday start time Uh, it looked like a two o'clock saturday start time it looked like the sixers spent two nights in canada and then was like oh man we got a two o'clock game on saturday totally forgot about that right 
they didn't seem like they had the same energy on Saturday afternoon. They didn't have the same energy. They certainly didn't have the same energy on Saturday. And they were still in that game. They had a shot to kind of pull back in. They were in that game because they were still the better team. Right. They, they, I mean, the Raptors did not play a great game. Um, look, the Sixers... The Sixers played sloppy. They had more turnovers than the Raptors. They had more fouls committed. The Raptors got more steals in the game. The, the Raptors also... They still had, shot 42% from three-point range. They did, but the other things, like the turnovers and the fouls, added up. You know, Toronto shot 23% from three. Philadelphia shot 42%. Typically, at the end of the day, 42%, you're going to say that team won the game. Um, but they didn't. And why didn't they win the game? Well, at the end of the day, you mentioned the turnovers. They had a lot of turnovers. There was a lot of fouls. Joel Embiid then gets fined for talking about the refs and how bad they were. Look, the NBA refs have been a story, sadly, in this whole. you got a ref trending on Twitter. I mean, that's not the be-all, end-all of things, but that's a bad look. When you have a referee trending because he's so bad. On top of the fact you had a baseball umpire that was trending on Twitter last night for how bad he was. But the Sixers just, look, they didn't have the same giddy. It's not easy to sweep a team. So I'm not sitting here saying missed opportunity, just, you know, how do you not sweep? Toronto's playing at home. They're they're a prideful team. They won a championship a couple of years ago. Their season was on the line. Yeah, people act like, you know, part of the reason why people like you and me, Mike, and others, really felt this was going to be a difficult series was because you looked at who Toronto's bringing to the table. They have guys who've won a championship. They have a bunch of athletic, long freakish kind of guys who are problems in matchups. And you saw that, you know, if you play a sloppy game like the Sixers did in game four, you're going to lose because it's still an NBA team. Well, they and look, they added pieces. They got Trent back. He scored 24. They got Barnes back. He played 26 minutes. He had 11 rebounds. We talked about losing those two players for a large chunk of this series mm -hmm. really changed the dynamic of this series. It did. I mean, who knows what happens if Trent and Barnes never get hurt? I'm not saying they win both those, either of the first two games, but maybe they win game three. That ugly game three in Toronto that Philadelphia found a way to kind of win, maybe they don't win that game and we're 2-2 right now. But losing, I mean, I know Trent played in game three, but Barnes did not. Correct. And Barnes, now, they're not going to have Van Vliet tonight, so now they're down another guy. So, and Siakam had his best game. He was 10 of 19. He had 15 free throws. And then, of course, Joel talked about the free, the, the, the fouls. Well, Siakam is at the line 15 times. That hadn't happened all series long. It was just one of those games. This text message, 609-403-0973, 609-403-0973. Paul from Millville says, hey, Mike, I wanted your thoughts. They look like a defeated team out there for game four for a team that was up three games a zero. Did you see that as well? I don't think I saw a defeated team. I just saw a team that I think understood that they had the cushion of coming back home to play. I mean, I liked what I did like is the scene at the end of the game and beads on the the bench with Harden and Maxi and he's got his arm around those guys and he's saying we're okay we got this we ain't coming back to Toronto because the crowd there was saying rap like Raptors in 7 or something like that and and Bead starts kind of smiling you know we ain't coming back he here he the golf clap yeah and yeah. he's walking off the court and Bead had right Embiid had the confidence 
walking off that court that we got this. But this isn't about this series. The injury to Joel Embiid isn't about them getting out of this series. Nothing that we discuss right now is about them getting out of this series. That should be a foregone conclusion. It's big picture. It's big picture. And the big picture is everything that's done. Are people tweeting at me about, well, you said the Nets won the trade with the Sixers. Yeah. And guess what? If the Nets were playing the Raptors and the Sixers were playing the Celtics, this would have a different, we'd be having a different conversation right now. 100%. The Sixers ain't beating the Celtics the way they're playing, and the Nets probably are beating the Raptors. And at that point, you would say, oh, the Nets won the trade. The trade being won or lost isn't about the Sixers winning this series and the Nets not winning their series. And Simmons has been a total disaster. This whole story, which we'll get into, it is the big picture. Is that the Sixers traded Ben Simmons to get James Harden, not to say they won the trade in terms of a personnel standpoint. It's we added a player to help us get further than Ben Simmons could get us. That's my point in terms of who won the trade. If you don't get out of the second round, did you win a trade? Of course you didn't. You got no further than you were with the guy you traded. The whole point of making the trade is to get a guy to put you above where you previously were. So when I talk about the Nets won the trade, it's not Ben Simmons is better than Harden. That's not what my point is. The point is Harden... If you win the trade, it's about getting the team further, not getting to the same destination with different people. And as I stated, the reason I think the Nets won the trade is because it depleted the Sixers' depth, and all they did was kind of change the furniture on on the Titanic. Yes, they have a guy in Harden who's a better scorer than, than Ben Simmons is. But now they, they have they have other problems that were affected by the fact that they gave away Steph Curry, they gave away Drummond. I understand that Drummond and Curry aren't helping the Nets win. That's not their role on that team. The Nets aren't winning because Drummond and Curry let them down. The Nets aren't winning because Kevin Durant has been a total turd. Of course you're not going to win a series if Kevin Durant comes out and plays like he's playing in this series playing horrible he's been horrible in this series if kevin durant is just 85 percent, 75 percent of himself it doesn't matter what drummond and curry do they're not the factors in who wins that trade ben simmons isn't even playing but james harden has to get the sixers further he has to get them further otherwise You lost the deal. You brought a player in to get you further than Ben Simmons could get you. And if the player you got doesn't get him further, (laughs) same old, same old. 609-403-0973. I'm Mike Gill. This is the Sports Bass Live on 97.3 ESPN. We're busy today. Mike McGarry. Ryan Rostin in 3 o'clock hour. Mosher has football at 4. What is Todd McShay hearing about the guy that executives around the league 
think the Eagles want? Which player do executives in the NFL think the Eagles want? I have that answer coming up here on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Hey, we will be live for our Eagles draft party this 30 at Slack, uh, Thursday at Slack Tide Brewing Company. We've been registering people all week. Those 75 people are in. We have you locked in. But if you want to be a part of the show, go to our website, 973ESPN.com, and fill out the form. You just might be a lucky winner that day. Go to our website now, 973ESPN.com, or download the free mobile app and enter the form, and you can come out to the draft party with a chance to win a Eagles road trip. It's all thanks to phillysportstrips.com and our friends at Ernest & Son Old Fashioned Butcher Shop in Brigantine. I'm Mike Gill. This is the Sports Bash. Sixers, Raptors, Game 5 tonight on 97.3 ESPN. Now, Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. 226 Sports Bash. A lot of texts coming in on a Monday as I... Would anticipate Sixers lose. Series is 3-1. Back in Philly tonight. Thibel's back. I thought losing Thibel hurt in one instance on Saturday afternoon. I'll explain coming up. The Sports Bash is brought to you by your Delaware Valley, <laughs> your Delaware Valley Acura dealers. With new inventory arriving daily, find your award-winning local Acura dealership today. Check out Acura's lineup online at DelValAcuraDealers.com. You know, the guy that I thought, and we talked about, the Raptors have been shorthanded in this series. They have not had Scotty Barnes for essentially all of game two, three, uh, and a little bit of game number one. They also did not have Gary Trent healthy. Uh, He missed one game with an illness. He tried to play. He was only 10 minutes in that game. He was obviously not himself. The other guy they were missing early in this series, he got hurt in game one, is former Sixer Thaddeus Young. He played 30 minutes on Saturday, had 13 points, five rebounds, five assists, three steals, a block. I thought his veteran savviness was a huge factor in the game. And I wonder if a guy like Matisse Thibel could have came in the game with Thaddeus Young and maybe kind of, you know, cooled somebody off. Because obviously the Sixers are a little light on the perimeter when it comes to defense. So when Gary Trent hits a three... Or you got Siakam, you know, having a big game. And then Thad Young came in to add something. I thought they were kind of, they were down a defender, if you will, in that game. And I thought Thad Young hit a couple of big buckets. He hit that one three in the corner. He was six and nine from the field. But defensively, he had a really tough game. I thought Thad Young was a difference maker in that game. Losing Van Vliet's a big loss for them tonight, but... Having Gary Trent and having Scotty Barnes and now the reemergence of Thad Young definitely makes this game an interesting <laughs> an interesting proposition for the Sixers at home tonight. Yeah, look, Thad Young is a veteran. He's a stabilizing presence. He's a guy who does multiple things. And for a team like the Raptors, who don't really do anything, one thing great, they depend on having guys who can do multiple things. So yeah, when Van Vliet goes out and Scotty Barnes just comes back, you don't want to lean on Siakam for everything. So, you know, Young was able to fill a void for different stretches of the game. Yeah, he, he was a veteran. 
he was a veteran guy for Toronto to turn to in a couple of moments. Uh, a couple text messages coming in. Mike, I feel where you're coming from with the concern. I really do, but the injury is an issue. But I think also by game two of the next series or three, Joel will be used to playing with this injury. And if he is a great player like we think he is, then he can still be dominant in these playoffs. It's just about him adjusting and dealing with the pain. I, I agree with you. Like I said, I don't think Joel looked compromised. It's just if he's not 100%, he's only 85%. I don't know that 85% of Joel Embiid, I know it's better than nothing, but the Miami Heat are deep, and they are very athletic, and they pose a lot of issues with what they do defensively. So if Joel Embiid is compromised at all, I'm concerned. I don't even know that they beat the Heat with just 100% Joel Embiid. Look, the Heat are a really good team. They're deep. They shoot the three really well. This is something that they do better than Toronto does. They add a lot of length. They've got athletic big in, in Bam Adebayo, so that's a problem. Somebody who can be athletic with Embiid. They have guys who can um, double-team Embiid, switch to Embiid. They're a tough matchup, and having Embiid at 100%, I think it's optimal, obviously. I'm not saying anything that's crazy here. But Embiid compromised even just a little bit, I think, tips the scale the other way. The Miami Heat are in some ways a better version of the Raptors. Well, they have Butler, who's better than anybody the Heat have. Right. Well, they, you know, for example, Kyle Lowry's better than Fred VanVleet, right? And then Tyler Hero is better than Gary Trent Jr. And then Jimmy Butler is better than OG Awanobi. And Bam Adebayo is better than Siakam. You know what I mean? Well, maybe not better, but he's he's a different type of problem for the Sixers. So, I mean, and the Heat like to play defense. The Heat got a better shooting array than the Raptors do. And I'm glad you mentioned Adebayo because I think Adebayo is realistically the only big man in the Eastern Conference that legitimately has the athletic ability to keep up with Embiid. I'm not saying he can stop him, but he's athletic you know, enough to be able to His athletic ability is up. a problem, right? His athletic ability, he is a guy that can cause a little bit more issues than Toronto's defenders can. Toronto has no answer for Embiid. Uh, Phil is listening. He texts in, Mike, can the Embiid injury actually get worse? Let's stop with that answer. No, according to Doc Rivers, it cannot get worse. This is It is what it is. It's not going to get worse. This is what it is. Uh, he goes on to say, if not, would they consider injecting a painkiller uh, in the area where that totally eliminates the ability to feel and properly shoot? It's tough for Embiid. This guy can't get through a playoff without something going wrong. Um, I don't know. Would you inject a painkiller into your hand? Would that numb your hand up so that you couldn't get a feel of the ball? Probably not. I mean, I've heard of people getting injections in small areas like that but i don't know how effective those things are like i've heard who is the football player i've heard a football player get like cortisol shots for like the wrist but like i don't I, i'm not i'm not i don't i'm not gonna act like i know enough about those things to act like you know yeah i can't imagine i want my hand be. to be numb yeah because you still need your you still need to feel the hand you know you know Part of the reason why MB keeps grabbing his hand the way he is is because he feels everything when he's doing stuff. If he feels nothing at all, 
houses dribbling, houses shooting. Yeah, I would think that that would be something that he that a player would not be interested in. They would not be interested in having their hands shot up and numbed uh, because you know you want to feel the ball, you want to have that you know the handle, you want to feel like hey, I have a good grip of the ball when I when it comes to me and have, feel it coming out of your hand is part of what a good shooter is. He feels the rotation, the spin of that ball kind of leaving his hand. You don't want to have so I would I would think no. And also, that. and I've you, Mike, you've heard me say this before. Look, these are professional athletes. They have the greatest medical people available to them on planet Earth. I'm sure that they have stuff that they're doing in B that we don't even think of or know about that are keeping him okay. Yeah, listen, to play. I, and I'm not trying to make this like Embiid has now been deemed irrelevant. I think you're still going to see a pretty dominant player in Joel Embiid. The question I have is, will the that player be compromised in any moment of the game? And if it is. That, to me, is enough to maybe be a problem. In other words, in the next series, if somebody's coming down the lane and he just, you know, winces a little bit because he does I think it's more blocking shots. I think it's more getting his hand in the passing lane. I think it's more dribbling the ball. I think it's more of those things. It's the little thing. It's not him shooting the free throw, you know, a foul line jumper. That seems to still be fine. But I definitely think you can see on defense, he's got that arm kind of hanging down there. He is not interested in swiping with that arm all that much. Yep. We'll see. Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City will join me on the other side. What is Todd McShay hearing about the Eagles pick at 15? We got that coming up. Football at 4. Jeff Mosher tonight. Hey, if you want to get involved with our Eagles draft party, You can go to our website, 97.3ESPN.com, fill out the form, and stop on out on Thursday. You might just be lucky. You might be lucky. We'll see all our qualifiers out there. They have a chance to win an Eagles road trip. You have a chance to uh, win an Eagles road trip. It's all thanks to our friends at phillysportstrips.com. Travel with the pros at Philly Sports Trips if you're a diehard Philly fan. Who's looking for some great Philly sports road trips? It's time to check out the full trip lineup right now at phillysportstrips.com. What's the level of concern? Scale of 1 to 10? Two and a half on this series. Two and a half. And I say that not because I think they're going to lose it, although Doc's lost more 3-1s than anyone. No one's ever lost a 3-0, which is where this thing started. But I will say, the level of concern isn't this series so much. It's if this series gets extended and Embiid has to keep playing and it gets extended and extended. They got to close this thing out tonight. Get it done tonight. More Sports Bash on the way. Now, back Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. 241, a lot of text messages coming in. 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. I'm Mike Gill. Hey, guys, take it from a guy who's had multiple cortisone shots. It does not numb you. It's not Novocaine. Okay, that's good to know. I've never taken a cortisone shot. So uh, maybe he's getting some sort of pain. Doesn't look like it, though. I'll tell you that much. Because every time something happens to that hand, he is grabbing it. He is wincing. He is uh, certainly grabbing it. Uh, Does that affect this series? Eh, Maybe not, Mike McGarry, but big picture here. Uh, Does this change the outlook for this Philadelphia 76ers, this Joel Embiid torn ligament in the thumb? 
Absolutely. I mean, this is a, an injury that has hampered previous NBA guys. Uh, you know, Jalen Brown, I believe, had it last year. Bob Adebayo had it this year. They both elected to have surgery and uh, were out five, six weeks. Uh, Embiid is going to uh, play through the pain. But, you know, the, your thumb on your shooting hand, I would think that would be important. So, uh, yes, it definitely impacts uh the Sixers' playoff chances going forward and, and adds to the narrative about Embiid, you know, wonderful player, but the big question has always been, does he have the durability withstand, to withstand the rigors of a two-month playoff run without being injured? And so far, the answer is no. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it affects this series. I think we agree there, but uh, sadly... I think that the thought of, you know, even if you have 100% Joel Embiid, I don't know that you're beating Miami. And now you have a guy, let's say he's 85%. I think that 15% is enough of a of being compromised that that tilts the series definitively one way. Right. Uh, you know, the Miami series was going to be tough enough with a 100% healthy Joel Embiid. Never mind facing the winner it will probably be Boston-Milwaukee. Uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals. So it would be hard to imagine the 76ers getting through the next two rounds with Embiid not 100%. Um, obviously, Saturday, you know, what do you make of that game? Is that just the classic, hey, we're up 3-0, it's a 2 o'clock Saturday game, just didn't have it, or was there something Nick Nurse, Toronto did that has you alarmed a little bit? Nah, classic, you know, we're up 3-0. Toronto's going to make a last stand in their building. The Sixers didn't look really that into it. They they played, I thought they played a a terrible game and and they were still in the game. I didn't think Toronto played that great. What was Toronto, like 8 for 34 from three-point range or something like that, or 8 for 24, something something that not not good. Uh, But I just think it's classic, like Toronto was going to get a game in this series and it just happened to be game four. Uh, you know, the Sixers kind of regroup and, and get ready to go play tonight. So I don't read anything into it. If, if they lose tonight, I start to get a little worried, but not not uh, off Saturday's performance whatsoever. Right. You take a look at, um, you know, Doc's history with the 3-1. Right, right, this was a right. 3-0 and nobody's ever lost a 3-0. Right, right. It, it never happens until it happens, right? And I don't think it's going to happen on this occasion. But if they were to lose tonight, and I don't think they will, I think they close the series out. Uh, they just open themselves up to a couple of days of talk and nonsense that they don't really need to deal with. You mentioned Doc Rivers' playoff uh, failure history. Then, uh, you know, add in James Harden's playoff failure history. You just open yourself up to a couple of days of chatter that you don't need to hear. And, and needless to say, I mean, with Embiid playing with this thumb, the goal should be for him to play as little games as possible uh, you know, and I don't know, once the ligament's torn, it's torn. I, I don't know what rest will do for it, but I can't imagine it would hurt. So you want Embiid playing it as little as possible. Uh, so the idea would be close them out tonight and not have to go back to Toronto. Yeah, that's certainly um, the preference here is to uh, close this thing out tonight. And then hopefully you get the whole rest of this week off. The series maybe starts on Saturday, I would think, at the earliest, depending on what happens with the Miami uh, Hawks game. Now, the Hawks losing that game last night, I think kind of you'll finish that series there. Um, you know, Atlanta basically didn't show up last night, so it looks like the Heat are going to take care of business in five as well. And then you get Miami, Philadelphia Saturday at some point, I think, would be the start of game number two. All right, Mike McGarry, let's uh, float over to... 
I'm imagining you have no surprise that Ben Simmons is not playing in the game tonight. No, I mean, it's it's really a stunning situation when you take a look back and see the last time we saw him on a basketball court was Game 7 of the Atlanta Hawks series last year. It, it, it's, it's really stunning. You know, I, I don't see, even when they were talking about him playing, you know, how is a guy who hadn't played a competitive basketball game in a year, he's going to walk into Game 4 of uh, that series, uh, which is being played in a pretty physical manner, uh, against a, a team in Boston that's probably playing as well as anybody in the NBA right now, and he's going to change the flow of that series. So I'm not surprised he's playing. And, and quite frankly, I think there's, you know, I'm not going to go as far as other people and uh, what they've said about him, but I, I think it's fair to say that after this year, there are a lot of questions about Ben Simmons and, and the direction of his career. Just health wise, I mean, to have a back that that's that that's problematic at the age of 24, 25 is is not good. No, I mean, and it feels like if he was going to play, it would have been Saturday. Why would you put I don't understand. It seems that Brooklyn bungled this whole situation. Why would they make him talk the other day saying he was coming back? Yeah, I I don't know. It's 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 a public relations nightmare. You don't know what. Uh, the player wants to do. Maybe Simmons wanted to talk. Maybe Simmons wanted to address it. You know, maybe he really did have a setback with his back situation. I mean, you know, wh- who knows? But uh, it's just been a strange, strange season for him. And one of which, you know, going forward, it's it's amazing. Here's a guy that we thought, what was that season? The first playoff season when the Sixers finished that regular season with 15, 16 wins in a row and and beat Miami in the first round of the playoffs. I mean, Ben Simmons was absolutely flying on the court, uh, looked unstoppable. Uh, and now to see where his career is five years later, it's really, uh, you know, head scratching and, and shocking, even for those of us who were never really Ben Simmons fans. And, and I was in that, you know, camp. I never imagined him, you know, getting to this point where, you know, he, he hasn't played in a year coming off a, a playoff series where he shot 33% from the foul line. I mean, you know, ho- holy smokes, you know, who knows where he goes from here? Yeah, I mean, and then there's some reports, Mike, that the Brooklyn, you know, they're just, uh, they're, they're at their wits end with this whole situation. You wonder if he could even, I don't know how. I don't know how he stares at those guys in the face if there was any thought he could play and then just decide. Not to mention, you covered him a lot. Like, I don't remember him showing up on the sidelines with these eccentric outfits. I mean, he almost seems like he just, I hate to say, like, lost his mind, but, like, uh, that's part of the whole thing. But he seems like he's lost his mind a little bit. Like, we never saw him dress like a complete idiot. Right, right. I, I would say this. He looks like a guy who's lost his way, who's struggling to sort of find a place in the world right now. Um, and and it, it's unfortunate. But I, I would agree with you. He looks like a player, a, a, a player, at least from the basketball perspective, he's sort of lost his way. Uh, you know, he's kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the Sixers obviously lost faith in him. Uh, you know, who knows where the Nets are with him, but you hear that they're upset with him. And, and you know, certainly Steve Nash's body language or the, the shortness of his answers during press conferences when asked about him the last couple of days kind of indicates that he's a little tired uh, of the Simmons situation. You know, who knows? Again, like I said, lots of question marks going forward. But, you know, he's still young enough. He's still a number one draft choice. You know, I can still see a team. 
you know, taking a chance on him and saying, uh, you know, what, you know, we'll take a chance on him. We'll take him and, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. And, and he's there many questions the Brooklyn Nets have. I mean, Kyrie Irving is, is front and center for them. I mean, what do you do with that guy? He had a great game one. He has looked absolutely non-existent in games two or three, adding to his sort of checkered playoff history. Yeah, he, he hit that shot for the Cleveland Cavaliers back when they beat Golden State, but he's kind of been uh, rolling with that shot for a while. He was a disaster in the playoffs when he was with the Boston Celtics, and, and his net tenure in the playoffs has not been sparkling. No, and these first rounds have given us a lot because you got uh, a number one seed, the Suns. Uh, they're in a battle right now. I know they don't have Booker, but... Do we get to see an eight beat a one? That's very rare in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, what's it like? The We Believe Warriors, and it's uh, you know Dikembe Mutombo holding the basketball over his head uh, when when the Nuggets won that series three games to two. Boy, it's hard to imagine. Uh, you know, I still think Phoenix has got to get through that series. It's hard to imagine. Uh, you know, I know how good Devin Booker is, but it's hard to imagine Devin Booker not being there would cost you. Uh, a first round series. I can see it costing you a second round series, but a first round series, who knows? But, you know, you, you look at these teams and, and, and you look at New Orleans and, and, and they got some guys. I mean, there's, there's, you know, they're 2 2 for a reason. Brandon Ingram is, you know, establishing himself as one of the top players, uh, top players in the league. So, yeah, you are seeing sort of a, a little bit of a transition. You know, KD looks a little old, right, for the Brooklyn Nets. And, and you see maybe a little transition to the Jason Tatum's, uh, Brandon Ingram's of the world right now. Yeah, uh, I, I, like the injuries that are occurring at this stage. I mean, now Milwaukee seems to be getting past it, but you wonder if they can, you know, do they have enough without Middleton to get by Boston in that second round? I mean, that's another interesting story that is really kind of uh, all these injuries and how these teams are going to deal with them, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a war of uh kind of a war of attrition and, and there'll be more injuries to come basically. And again, that's what it is. It is a grind. Although I, I don't remember like NBA guys getting injured like this in the playoffs, like so many prominent guys going out, you know, you got uh, Luca who went out in the last game of the regular season. You got Devin Booker out. You got Embiid now banged up. You got Chris Middleton hurt. Uh, you know, it really is amazing. The guys that are out and, uh, you know, I guess that that's why, you know, you fight like hell to get in the playoffs. Uh, you know, there's New Orleans, a team that's, you know, got in via the, the play-in tournament because you never know what's going to happen once you're in. You know, anything can happen and one injury can turn it in your favor. Next thing you know, you know, New Orleans is 2-2 with a Phoenix team, which what, what did Phoenix win? 30 more games than New Orleans uh, this season? It's, it's crazy. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. All right, uh... Boy, uh, looking forward to – I'm really – you know, these second-round games are going to be amazing, but we still have great first-round stories. I want to ask Mike, you know, uh, Phillies lose two out of three again. They have not won a series since the opener. Uh, they struck out, what, 17 – 16 times 16 last times last night. night. Um, I don't – it's not the panic button, but I think I look up at the standings, and what are they, six games out? Right. I think they're five and a half out, uh, but they're in a lot. I think they're in a lot of trouble. I, I wrote last night, I, I looked it up and I couldn't believe it. Out of the 30 Major League Baseball teams, only two, the Washington Nationals and the Cincinnati Reds, are further out of first place right now 
than the uh, than the Philadelphia Phillies. This is this is trouble. I think even though the season's two weeks old and you're 16 games in, this is a big four games at home with Colorado, and then it's a big three games. Uh, you know, with the New York Mets up at City Field this weekend. This is a key seven games. This, the Phillies have got to sort of fire or else they're going to be they're going to be in trouble. So I'll tell you the Mets, the Mets are for real. You know, the, the pitching staff is there. Even without DeGrom, the lineup is deep. They have a lot of guys in that lineup. You know, you look at run differential in baseball. Them and the Dodgers are running away with run differential in, in baseball. The Mets are 12 and 5. You know, I, they're for real this season. And, uh, you know, the Phillies, to be to be in the same grouping as the Cincinnati Reds and Washington Nationals, two teams who are obviously tanking, uh, you know, is not good. I think this is a big, uh, a big stretch with Colorado here and a big stretch with the Mets this weekend. I, this is a big seven games. If, if you go two and five during this stretch or one and six, you're going to look up on May 1st and you're going to be eight, nine games out of first place. You're in a lot of trouble. All right. Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. NBA playoffs continue tonight. Sixers, Raptors right here on 97.3 ESPN. Close it out. Let's not get to Thursday because then you have Eagles, Draft, and the Sixers on the same night. I can't deal with that (laughs) on the radio station. Mike, take care, bud. All right. We'll see you. Thanks. All right. That's uh, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. And if that was to happen, there was a game six. You would hear the Sixers and Raptors game six over on our sister station, Rock 1041. We'll have the NFL draft right here on 97.3 ESPN. Eagles have two picks, 15 and 18. What would they like to do with those picks? What is Todd McShay hearing? Go to our website, 97.3 ESPN.com right now for the latest draft buzz on the Eagles picket number 15. When we come back, Ryan Rothstein from the Philadelphia CityCast is back for another conversation on this injury. Sixers, Raptors, and NBA playoffs. All that next here on the Sports Bash. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Game five tonight, 97.3 ESPN's coverage begins at 8 o'clock. Sixers and Raptors. I'm Mike Gill. Ryan Rothstein is the host of the Philadelphia City Cast. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The number on the game tonight is very interesting. Basically saying the Sixers are going to end this thing. A lot of money, though, coming in on the Raptors. Van Vliet out of game five. He might be out for game six as well. Can the Sixers finish this off? Does it matter if they do? Let's get into that and more. Ryan Rossi from the Philadelphia City Cast joins me right now. That Toto Hold the Line song sounds very dramatic as we get into this uh, 3 o'clock hour on a Monday. You know, the Sixers are going to win this series. I think that's a foregone conclusion. But I tweeted out on Saturday, sadly, the thumb injury. I'm a pretty optimistic guy. You don't get a lot that really rattles me here. And I'm not saying I'm like, oh, my... I just don't see how the Sixers team can make a deep playoff run without 100% Joel Embiid. They had 100% Joel Embiid all season long for the most part. They had him in the playoffs. They didn't have the Phantom of the Opera welding mask. They didn't have an MCL sprain. They had nothing. They had a, a full, they didn't have gastroenteritis. And now this. I got to be honest, man. It's a pretty positive guy. 
That jarred me a little bit. How can it not? Right? I mean, I, I think it's an easy it's an easy statement to make, MG. I'm not, you know, coming at you or anything. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, if, if this team doesn't have a healthy Joel Embiid, they're screwed. I mean, they'll, they'll get out of this series, but it's frustrating. It's frustrating as hell to me because we started to feel like we're not going to have these durability injury issues, debates and conversations, at least for maybe any more with Joel Embiid. And here we are after a great MVP season and he has this torn ligament at the worst possible time when we're trying to uh, make a deep run, like you said. Yeah, and I don't know that I saw any impediment in his offensive game. Like, So I'm not sitting here saying that. But it's clear when he goes to shake hands, it's left-handed. When he's playing defense, he's not all that interested in getting that hand up. He's not getting the passing lanes. He's not blocking shots. I mean, so I think it's more of those things than it is his shot. His shot doesn't seem to be impeded all that much, but... I think that the Raptors understand that he's got some sensitivity there and he doesn't want to get that ball moving out of his hand it's that fast. So they're sending guys at him a little faster. They're making him make quicker decisions. And when he catches that ball, there might be a little bit of a wince and that wince is just enough for him to now not have enough time to get rid of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and I, I disagree with you slightly on like in the impediment stuff. Like, he he had 21 points. He wasn't great in game four. And, you know, you could just say, well, he had a bad game, right? I mean, you know, game four up 3-0, he, he played a little sloppy. And and let's hope that's it. Like, we're going to learn tonight how how well he can play through this injury. Like, that that's what I'm looking at. I Obviously, I want them to close it out and win the game. But what version of Joel Embiid not only will we have tonight, but like you said, Mike, moving forward. I think it's imperative that they close it out tonight. You've got to get him off the floor for this week and let him just sit around, do whatever they got to do. I don't think it's going to get fixed. I don't think it's going to change all that much. But you can't be extending this series out now to a six, traveling back to Toronto. And then if they were to, for whatever reason, tie this thing up at 3-3, then the whole Doc Rivers thing, that starts to, to play a factor. You've got to finish this thing now, tonight, imperative. Absolutely. Uh, Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. We had a quick... Uh, right, that or, was my fault. That, that um, was my fault. Go ahead. Fine, but you can't repeat that now and then have to travel back to Canada for a game six on the road. Like, this is just... It's a recipe for not disaster, um, but you don't feel great about it if they don't win tonight. You, you got to get it over with for a variety of reasons, a, a, a long list of reasons. Yeah, and look, like... I do like the way that Ben, uh, Ben, uh, Joel's body language was at the end of that game. You know, like, hey, we got this. We're not going back there. Like, that did show an aura of confidence of we recognize that we played a poor game and we still were kind of in this thing. Um, but at the same time, I think if you're the Raptors, you kind of look at it as, hey, we got Barnes back. We had Thaddeus Young back. We got Gary Trent back. These are guys that we didn't have a whole heck of a lot. And now we feel like we have our mojo going a little bit, and your guy's not 100%. I will also say the Sixers shot 42% from three-point range again and lost the game. At what point is the iron unkind, dude? I I say this, man. Yeah, and and that's a fair point. But, like, they shot 42%, which was surprising. Uh, I looked at the box score after the game. I was like, 
holy bleep, they shot 42%. It didn't feel like they shot 42%, right? And for me, it's all about Maxi. Like, I, I ask you often, Mike, over the past couple of weeks, well, who's your X factor? Like, who's the difference? Um, and I'll ask you that again. Like, and I'll answer that first. It's Maxi. Uh, he took two shots in the first quarter last game, two shots in the second quarter, 0 for 2 in the first, 1 for 2 in the second. The Sixers go as Maxi goes. I think that's already clear as day. Forget James Harden and we need Houston Harden. That, that'd be nice. <laughs> but it's all about Maxi for me. Yeah, and it's look, Maxi is a big factor. He's been a big factor in this series. I mean, uh, the way he came out and scored. The problem is with the young players, the consistency factor comes into play here. Can he consistently be that guy? And it seems that the answer is no. He can't. He consistently. We're not asking you to score thirty-eight, but can you give me seventeen to twenty-three somewhere in that range every time out? And I'm not sure that he's at that level yet. And and you know they might need him to be at that level. Yeah, and for me, it's not even about the points. I, listen, it is about the points, but he needs to be at least consistently aggressive, right? Like, my issue is have a bad night, right? Like, have a have a terrible night. That's fine. You're a young kid. You're figuring it out. You can't take four shots in the first half of a game when they need you. Like, him being aggressive could just be enough, even if he's having an off night. Mm -hmm. He needs to be a threat. Yeah, I mean, look, this isn't panic mode yet. I don't even think you're at panic mode if you lose tonight. It, it really, if, you know, it gets to 3-3 three, three is when you can start to get a little bit concerned. Um, I didn't see a whole heck of a lot the other day that I'm like, oh, my gosh. It was just, you know, I hate the 2 o'clock Saturday game, especially with two days of waiting in Toronto, right? They played on Thursday. Uh, they played on Wednesday. And then they yep. waited Thursday and Friday to play Saturday afternoon. It just set up for, like, this was not going to be your day kind of game. So I'm not really all that worried about that. The one thing I did, I will say, is Siakam seemed to have found a little groove. And then he got to the line. And then this whole thing with the foul. And B gets fined $15,000. The officiating in this league is a big problem. And the yep. officiating in this series, it's going to be interesting to see what happens tonight after the, the fines and the way Nurse has been going. I mean, these two teams have been spending the whole series with their palms up in the air. It's, it's annoying. I mean, it's beyond annoying. It's embarrassing. It needs to change. I, this is, and it's not just in this series, MG. It's every series in the NBA playoffs on either side of the conference, West or East, every series. Like, you know how these games are going to go because of how bad the officiating is. It's like, well, if a series is 2-0 and it shifts, you know, to game three on the road, you know that team at home is going to get all the calls. We shouldn't know what's coming. We shouldn't know that. We shouldn't know tonight, well, Embiid's going to get some more favorable calls. Harden's going to get some more favorable calls because now it's in Philly. Like, that's, that is not a, 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 the sign of a good product. Uh, I talked about this the other night. Uh, we, me and you can get into it. The officiating absolutely has to change because it's an embarrassment to the game. I agree. I, and look, I'm not one to say the officials cost you a game. It's not about whether it costs you the game, win or lose the game. 
it is the product has become an embarrassment because your officials are so bad. I don't. It, it, it's not. Oh, it's against the Sixers or. The, it's yep. just bad. It's just bad, bad, bad everywhere. Every game, every night, you have officials trending. I mean, and it's it's got to be fixed. It's got to be fixed. And it's fixable. It's fixable. So I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts or ideas on how to – because I've had a few that, that can – I think could certainly help rectify the problem pretty easily. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a couple easy ones too, and we we may be on the same page. It's – I did some research over the weekend about this, and the NFL, I, I need confirmation on it. Maybe Josh knows or you know, but I'm pretty sure a few years back, the NFL added the number of officials that are on each game, right? And that's that's one easy thing for me. What I think it's three, four right now that are uh, calling an NBA playoff I game. I think it's three, right? I thought it was three in the regular season. Okay, let's go with three. Um, There needs to be six. Double it, okay? And when I say double it. think that helps or hurt, though? Like, a lot of times, like a high school basketball game, normal games have two. Yep. When it's a bigger game, sometimes they go to three, and it's almost because there's more, they call more. Because they see more. More eyes, more fouls. That can't happen, right? Like, you just need to have more eyes. And I don't think... Like, how old is Scott Foster? A hundred and two. Okay. Like, dude, these refs shouldn't be running up and down the floor. So have an added official or multiple, have them in one spot. They don't move all game. And I would even have three or four bench officials that come in and relieve these guys for a quarter or two. None of the players are running up and down the floor from start to finish. Why should Scott Foster be running up up and down the floor from start to finish? Give him a break. That's an astute point. Right? I I mean. Or or what you could do is if you're having six, three at one end, three at the other. So you're having the three on both sides, but the three down the one end, they're not calling fouls down the other end of the court. They're only calling fouls yes. down the one end of the floor. Now the the and they can switch sides so you're not getting the same yep. ones the whole game. Yes. I, I love I love that idea. That's my thinking. And you know, have have guys in one spot. That's your de- that's your designation. You rotate them like you said, so it's not you know Joe Schmo calling fouls on the Sixers all night and vice versa. Uh, and they another obvious statement that we talk about in every professional sport, Mike. You got to figure out a way to utilize video more effectively and efficiently because if I can see it in my lazy boy, then they should be able to well, make the right call. And and Rod, that's been my thing is look if you have the three guys, you have a fourth person that watches the monitor. We see it at home as fast as possible that that person on the sideline could literally hit a button green or red you got it wrong change it we saw it it looked like oh oh, fine you're being overly cautious you're calling things because you think you saw something so we're gonna blow the whistle but that guy that fourth guy could literally see it and say you think he hit his arm it looked like he hit his arm i'm looking at the video he didn't let's just change it and get back to it would take two seconds, and the two seconds that the guy is in the referee's face yelling at him that, I didn't touch his arm, I didn't do anything. The guy who's officiating on the side could look at that video and say, he's right, he didn't touch his arm, switch the call, and let's keep going. It wouldn't impede the game at all. No, not at all. And I don't understand when they go to the review, like late in a the game, they put on the headset, or there's a challenge, 
they're sitting there looking at it for five to ten minutes. It's like, dude, whoever's in Secaucus, wherever the hell they're at, they should have this answer for them before they put the headset on. I go over, put the headset on. Hey, Rye, this is the call. You got it wrong. Overturn it. Hey, Rye, call stands. Boom, done. Shouldn't take more than 30 to 60 seconds. Yeah, I mean, most of the calls you think are pretty quick to do it. There are some times where it's like, ah, the pinky, did it hit? I can't tell. There are a handful, and you want to make sure they get it right. But it's these fouls, these ridiculous – there's so many of them. I tweeted one about Harden. You know, the one night, him and Malachi Flynn are both going for the same ball – and Harden ends up hitting the deck. They call a foul on him. Flynn ends up with the ball clean. There's no need to waste a foul call. It didn't impede a play. It didn't change the play at all. Two guys hustled for a ball. They collided. Colliding is not a foul. Yet you call the foul, and now that guy has a foul on his regist- on his ledger. There's no need to call that foul. There's so many times. There was a play the other night with Harden involved. And I'm like, that right there is a call that simply does not have to be made. And these aren't like the ones that I'm talking about that you can, but it's the three-point shots. It's these, you know, ones where they're taking the ball to the basket. Is the foot moving or not? It's those type of things. Hey, the one the other night with the guy swiping and it hit his fro. Somebody can watch that over in two seconds and be like, nope, that's a foul. Keep the call. Nope, that's not a foul. Change it back. I mean, it might get a little tedious, but it's not going to slow the game down. Right. And it's like, as you were just explaining that, I'm thinking about the NFL. I'm thinking about Major League Baseball. And the NBA is so different because the NFL, you start and stop play to play, obviously, as we all know. And the officiating can be annoying. There can be a lot of flags in an NFL game, but it's not dictating the style and pace of a game. Like the, the, the officiating in an NBA playoff game and in an NBA series can dictate the outcome of the series and how these games are wanting to be played. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. It is. I mean, the fact that these officials and and the style of the play, you know, we're talking about Scott Foster and there's people saying that he needs to be investigated because uh, the Harden and Chris Paul have never won a series. What is it, a game or a series? A playoff game. So, and who's he officiating tonight? The Boston game, right? Boston game, so everyone's saying take Brooklyn. Exactly, right. Yeah. I mean, you can't have this kind of stuff where there's a guy who is so known to play a factor in a certain game. You know, like NBA refs, you you shouldn't know who these guys are, much like football. I mean, football has the guy who's the white hat, so you know who that person is most of the time. But in the NBA, while they have a crew of fit, uh, like a lead guy, anyone can make the calls. Any one of the three could make a call, and it's not just the white. Now, I get anybody in the NFL could throw a flag, but you know the person's name because they're the person that gets and announces the call. Yes. Where in the NBA, whoever makes the call is the person who announces it. Correct. And and the other problem with the NBA officiating Like in game four, I forget the situation. I'm pretty sure it was 76ers were on offense. Either it was knocked out of bounds or it was a foul call. And in the replay, you saw the ref right there on the baseline, right there, like right there. It was Embiid, maybe Siakam on defense and the official in the shot of the replay. And the official missed the call and the official at half court 
made the call. He ended up making the right call. But I'm sitting there saying, how is that on the half court official? Like that has to be only on the official right there seeing the play. Mm -hmm. It's just nuts. Yeah, I, I mean, I hate to, that that this much of the officials is a factor. And it's not just against Philly or for Philly. No. It's every series. It's every series, every night where you're just like, oh, my God, that is so bad. And, and it, it shouldn't be like this. It really shouldn't. And as you mentioned, there's some fixable ways to do it. I like the idea of having six, three at each end. And then, like, they, it's like a volleyball game. Everybody go one step to the right and just yeah. rotate around so that it's never, like, the, the same group at the same time. So you can't say, well, you have those three and we have these three, and they're calling the game a little differently. Nope, just keep rotating them around, and that's just the way it would be. I mean, I think that would be instead of having them running up and down the court. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's like, listen, man, <laughs> when in doubt, playoff time, swallow the whistle. Like, swallow your, your freaking whistle, okay? I don't need to hear the whistle all night. Let fouls go on both sides. I'll be completely fine with that. Like, just don't be so inconsistent where one game there's 40 fouls and the next game there's 15, and it's consistent depending on who's the home team. It's just idiotic. Uh, 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. See your text messages. We'll read them off and react on the other side. Kyle Schwarber went nuts last night. We'll dive into that. Plus, a lot of people, and I saw a tweet you put out there, to which I have some issue with. We'll get into that as well. Ryan Rothstein is the host of the Philadelphia City Cast. You can listen to that wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Mike Gill. This is the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Brought to you by AC Airport. Plan your next vacation now and create memories to last a lifetime. Start with nonstop flights from Atlantic City to Boston, Atlanta, San Juan, and Miami. Book your low-cost flight at spirit.com. More Sports Bash now. Back to Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. South Jersey's sports leader. All right, 326, Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Sports Bash is live Thursday, Slack Tide Brewery for the 97.3 ESPN Eagles Draft Party. It starts at 2. You're invited. Slack Tide Brewery, Cape May Courthouse, reminds you to always drink responsibly. And if you want to be there, go to our website, 973ESPN.com, and fill out the form. You might just be lucky that day and win an Eagles road trip. We'll see all our qualifiers out there. And you can go to our website, 973ESPN.com. Fill out the form. All the information's on there for Thursday's show. And you might have a shot to win an Eagles road trip. Thanks to our friends at phillysportstrips.com. All right, Ryan Rothstein's from the Philadelphia City Cast. You can download his podcast and listen to that wherever you get your podcast. It drops five days a week. And, of course, we uh, chit-chat on Wednesday, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays here in the 3 o'clock hour. A lot of Sixers. You know, there's Embiid thumb injury. I definitely am concerned about that. I'm not so concerned about this series. It's more long-term than anything else. Um, I also want to... So you tweeted about where are all the uh, the Nets won the trade people out there because I'm one of those people. That's right. Yeah, I'm on. I'm one of those, and my reasoning is this. Okay, first off, Ben Simmons hasn't played, so obviously, if I'm grading it, 
he hasn't played yet. That certainly factors into what's going on right now. The Sixers are prospering more from their player than the Nets are with their player. To me, though, it's not about that. It's not about the players who swapped. You had a player who didn't want to be here. You had another player who didn't want to be there. This, to me, is about can the Sixers get further than they did with Ben Simmons? Because you might have won the trade by personnel, but if you get no further than the second round, what did you really accomplish? That you got a better player for now? Ben Simmons might not be playing now, and he might never play. Who the hell knows at this point? But his upside to play with them is certainly, in my mind, better than James Harden playing at 33, 34, 35 years old at $250 million. That's not appealing to me right now. Though, Look, Harden's been great. He's added something. But I'm concerned that he's going to be the same player next year, the year after, and whatever you sign him long-term for. So I think, to me, when I'm judging that trade, it's more than just the Sixers are getting out of the first round and the Nets are not. If these series were flip-flopped, the Sixers ain't beating the Celtics and the Nets are probably beating the Raptors. So it's easy to say, well, where are all the people who thought the trade uh, went one way? It's not about that. Can the Sixers get out of the second round? That's that would answer the question to me, that you you got a better deal because you got a player who finally got you further than Simmons could get you. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's not even about how far they're going to go. It's about, it's just, I think it's so obvious right now that the Nets didn't come out better off because in this trade because Ben hasn't played. He hasn't played all year. So right now, like, forget down the road for me forget yeah. down the road and forget next year with Harden and will they sign him in the offseason and is it too much money at this age all those are fair questions but right now the Nets didn't air quote win this trade there's questions and concerns now moving forward on both sides but I'm just looking at it when I say that and I said it a little bit tongue-in-cheek just to sort of shove it at Brooklyn Nets fans but you know it, it's if Ben is just avoiding playing on the floor, even with Brooklyn, then they didn't win this trade. And that's the point that I'm that I, the angle that I'm looking at it from, especially at the time of the trade. I was on even other shows and, and people are saying, well, yeah, oh, the Nets are look at the Nets now. They're good. They're going to do this, this and that this year. They've been the betting favorite and now they're about to get swept. And Ben Simmons has yet to see the floor. In my eyes, they didn't win anything. Well, it's certainly disappointing from their end. No question about it. I think they feel like they've gotten uh, the short end of the stick. No question about that, too. Um, And look, they're not losing this series because they didn't get anything from Drummond and Curry. Like, they lost the series because Durant has sucked. That's what it comes down to. Their best player has not been very good. You don't judge, well, you know, the two guys the Sixers gave you didn't really give you all that much. It's not about those guys. The best no. players win, and your best player has been insignificant. And we, we can talk about Kevin Durant if you want to because I have a lot to say about that dude right now. Did you a hear, lot to say. Did you hear Barkley? Um, I don't think I did hear everything he had to say about Katie. What what did he say? Uh, let me get the bite um, here. Okay. I will get it uh, loaded up here in just a second. Let me, uh, this should be it right here. All right, this was Charles Barkley last night on the uh, TNT. He's been saying a lot of things in the last couple of games here, but this is what he said about KD's playoff performance this year. Take a listen. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. Tell him. Chuck Come on, man. Money. Don't tell me you're a great player. I mean, 
all these guys can play. But please don't tell me you're a great, great player and you're averaging 20. Come on now. You, I don't think I ever played in the playoffs and averaging Oh, here 20. we go. Is Kevin Durant a great, great player? He is. And he's been stifled by Boston. And I was going to go there. And, and let me tell you something. I don't want to badmouth the dude, but I'm... T I, I, see, you guys always talk about that championship stuff. I try to tell y'all, all these bus riders, they don't mean nothing to me. If you ain't driving the bus, don't walk around and tell about you a champion. If you riding the bus, I don't want to hear it. Come on, Shaq, tell them. All these guys walk around with these championship rings. Hey, y'all bus riders. But let That's me tell you something. Road, when you bus, when you the bus driver and you got all that pressure where you have to play well, are you going to get the blame? That's a different animal. <laughs> All right, that's Barkley there. He's basically calling Durant a bus rider. That Not that he's the driver of the bus, that he jumped on the bus, won a couple championships, but when he's had to drive the bus himself, he's not up for the task. I, I couldn't agree with him more. I, I mean, at what point do we say, let's say the Nets get swept, or let's say the Nets lose in five or six. I don't, I don't even think it matters. Uh, but getting swept is certainly a, a worse look, a, a more of a black eye. At what point do we say, huh, okay, let's look at Kevin Durant's track record here for a second. OKC, up 3-1, blow the lead to the best team ever. You run off and go join them. Then you go win, win some championships. You look good playing with the best team arguably of all time. Now you go run off and form this super team that for the past two years, all everyone is talking about is how unstoppable they're going to be, how unfair it's going to be, and they haven't done bleep. And he has come up small is an understatement. Uh, I mean, so what is his legacy right now? It, it ain't great. It's, it ain't it's great. definitely tainted a little bit. And look, I used to be a huge Durant fan. He was my favorite player in the league. I loved him in Oklahoma City. I loved him coming into the league. When he made the decision to go to Golden State, that tarnished to me. I just was like, I can't respect this guy anymore. He has become worse and worse and worse in terms of being able to respect him and and, and as a player. And this mm -hmm. Nets situation has been a complete and utter disaster for him and the whole legacy of him winning those championships. Because some people looked at it like, look, they weren't winning those championships. They needed Durant to win those championships. He was the MVP, Right, I mean, it wasn't like he was riding the driving the uh, riding the bus. He drove the bus for that team. <sighs> I mean, fair yes. or unfair, are they winning those championships if Kevin Durant's not on that team? Maybe. I mean, they won before him. You know, I mean, listen, he was their best player, but he joined what was already one of, if not the best team of all time, playing with that team. Even if you're 1A, it's a lot less stressful than leading a team that's mm. not very deep, that's a different makeup, i.e. this team or any other team, than that team. So even if he's leading the bus, even if he's the finals MVP in Golden State, it's not the same thing because the stress level there was like, it was, it was a video game. It, it wasn't even fair. Right, he's playing with his, if he's the best player, his secondary pieces are champions. Exactly. Exactly. His, his secondary pieces here are Manny Moe and Jack, the Pep Boys. I mean, he's got no. This team has no depth. Nothing. Now, they added Curry and Drummond, and that helps them out a little bit. The problem is he hasn't played well. This isn't like Drummond and Murray uh, Curry haven't given them enough. No, 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 no. 
You haven't given them enough. The two stars of that team have not played up to their capabilities. And if they did, this might be a different series. People are acting like Boston has, you know, kicked them up and down the court. They sh- they could have won game one. They lost by a point in a game that Durant didn't show up for. They were up by, t- what, 20 in game two and couldn't hold the lead because they had no depth. And Durant played like crap. The game that they got beat up in really was the game that they decided that they had no morals or pride and didn't show up for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I rewatched a few episodes of The Last Dance a few days ago, and the Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant right now with Brooklyn reminds me of uh, the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan before Phil Jackson became the head coach because it was all on MJ. It was the Michael Jordan show. And they realized, and MJ realized, once Phil came in and instituted the triangle, you need your other players around you to be playing well, and you need to make them better, and it needs to be a collective thing. And that's every champion any year. Right now, it's just the KD show, and Boston, give them a ton of credit. They've been playing great defense. They've come up with a great game plan and scheme defensively, and KD can't win it by himself, and he's not going to. You know, there was a good conversation today. My boy Q was uh, in on the midday show today. He was hosting with uh, uh, Bart Scott, and they were talking about um, they were talking about Udoku, who was a, 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 a assistant on Nash's staff, along with D'Antoni. And I was thinking about this. Like, Monty Williams, who's like the coach of the year, number one seed, and Udoku were both on Brett Brown's staff. And their whole thing was about this was about how important the assistant coaches are that we put so much on the head coach and all that stuff. But Nash, he's saying how Udoko is taking this personally. Like, he had that team last year and was like, I could do much better with this team than what you're getting from that team. And he's just running circles around. And Nash doesn't have anybody to turn to to say, hey, help me out here. Yeah, I mean, what what does Nash's staff look like? Right? <laughs> like, it's it's not very good. I mean, you look at Doc's staff. Like, Doc has an excellent staff. We can criticize Doc all we want, and I will. Um, but his staff is unbelievable, right? So that's something that you can lean your hat on and feel good about. That's any any championship-level team has a strong staff and has a coach that mm-hmm. ideally has some experience. Yeah. Like, Steve Nash right now is a joke. We all know he's going to get fired once they get eliminated. That That's as clear as day. Yeah, well, I don't know how... If you are Sean Marks, and by the way, there's some news regarding Sean Marks, Ben Simmons, Clutch Sports, yada, yada. I'll get to that in a second. I don't know how if you're Sean Marks, you – see, here's the problem. His stars are so entrenched as the voices of that team that you can't just go to them and be like, I'm removing this guy, and this is the guy I'm putting in his place, whether you like it or not. I think you've already passed that threshold. Why? He has to do that. Like, I think he gave the keys to those guys, and they crashed the they crashed the ship. I mean, once again, I'll bring up the last dance, sorry. But they went to MJ, and he was pissed about Doug Collins, you know, getting moved out of the way because he was a player's coach, and he was putting the ball in his hands. Different Same exact era, situation different in Brooklyn. Time, different era. I, I understand, but it's still it still applies. Like, if you're not winning and you fall this short, when you were supposed to be in the NBA Finals, if not holding up a second Larry O'Brien, and you're getting swept in the first round, 
you can't just say, well, KD wants him here, so let's continue losing. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Oh, I think that whole situation, what happens there? Now, the news that just came down uh, from Woj regarding Ben Simmons. Sources say Ben Simmons and Rich Paul meet with Sean Marks and Nets leadership today to discuss how they'll continue to work through the physical and mental hurdles needed to get Simmons back on the court. Simmons reiterated that his desire to play for the Nets is to play for the Nets, and the sides talked about how they'll work together and try to get there. Both groups believe Simmons had two good weeks of physical ramp-up through Sunday, but ultimately realized there are still mental and physical hurdles that need to be addressed. The Nets believe Simmons has been addressing both mental and physical areas in recent months and recognize there's much more work to do. The Nets meet the Celtics. Game four tonight, they trail the series. Uh, what, what an epic fail. Of, well, the Nets, of the biggest proportions. We think the Sixers fumbled things throughout their process and with Simmons and this whole Simmons thing. This is a complete blunder of epic proportions by the Brooklyn Nets and their organization. Uh, yeah, it, it is an all-time black eye. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess they assumed that they were going to win game three, right? And then they lose, and now they're sitting there saying, ah, bleep, we, we, we can't yeah, but, roll them out okay. here now down 3-0. Well, but why not? Like, you've almost put them in, in the perfect situation, 3-0. If they lose, okay, like, that's the end of the season, and then it just goes away. If they win, he can come back and say, I came back and helped us win. I, I mean, I get that point of it, but then you sit here and say, all right, you're down 3-0. How do we incorporate him? How do we fit him in? Is he mentally ready? You go to him after you lose game three. You see how he's feeling. He's a little bit shaky yeah. mentally. I'll tell you this. It's a mess. And, and look, I'm not judging what kind of person you want based on your attire. But I've never seen him come oh, out will. dressed like that. When, but seriously, he's been on the sideline. I've never seen him dressed like a complete, like he's, he seemed like a guy who's just lost it. Yeah, I think he has completely lost it. It's, I thought about this last night a little bit, like, because I, I have fun, like, with my posts and stuff on Twitter and Instagram making fun of him. And so does the whole world right now on NBA Twitter. It's like, at what point do we dial this back and look at a guy that is seriously going through it? Yeah, no, like, that's because what I'm he is clearly mentally, mentally struggling right now. Oh, there's no question. That's why, like I said before, I don't have any questions. He had some mental problems like that's The, the only thing I believed about any of this is that Ben Simmons was dealing with some mental issues. Seeing him come out the other night dressed like that. Yeah. Just complete lack of awareness mm-hmm. of how he is perceived and what the questions are about him. When people are questioning you, you don't come out dressed like a clown. You're at a basketball game with your teammates. You know, at least wear the colors of the team and support them. Have a Nets hoodie on, for God's sake. Just just wear a black suit. I mean, just anything, dude. Like, it's – and for him to come out like two days ago, Mike, and they're asking him about game four, and he's sitting there, well, my basketball IQ is so high. should have never put him out there. What's that? The Nets should have never put him out there. That's my point. That's my point. And and he he was talking to the media like he was definitely coming back game four. Mm-hmm. Then they go to him the next day, and he's clearly just backing out. Like, it's not – don't give me the physical stuff. Don't give me his back injury. I'm sorry I'm not buying it because 12 hours prior, he was cocky and confident saying he was going to play. He's dealing with some mental stuff right now that I think is on another level than he was dealing with here. All right, Sports Pass Live, 97.3 ESPN. 
Uh, we talked about NBA refs. What about baseball umpires? There was an epic meltdown last night. You can check out the video at 97.3ESPN.com. Kyle Schwarber with an all-timer last night, and he was arguing for both sides. I mean, he had the Brewers basically giving him an outstanding ovation. More Sports Bash on the way. This is 97.3 ESPN. Now, Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, 349 Sports Bash getting ready to... uh, Dive into football at four in about 11 minutes. A lot of Eagles stuff. But we'll finish off the hour with Ryan Rothstein from the Philadelphia City Cast. You can download that wherever you get your podcast. Follow him on Twitter at WiseRye. Phillies last night, they lose two out of three. Uh, Kyle Schwarber had a little bit of a meltdown. Now, it's funny. I figured this would be your classic everybody supporting Kyle Schwarber. But I posted the story up on our uh, website, 973ESPN.com, and there has been some mixed reaction, some of which is saying, hey, you wouldn't have this uh, type of reaction if you weren't hitting 169. If the team had won five in a row, you wouldn't react like this. So uh, what did you think about Schwarber's little meltdown last night? Forget all that. I mean, we can touch on that in a second, but I thought it was amazing. I I absolutely loved every second of it um, for a variety of reasons. I, I thought he was, I thought it was deserved. Like I thought it, I thought he was uh, right in doing that. And even if he wasn't, I still loved it. And I think it's great for the game. I thought it was entertaining uh, and I thought it needed to be done. Uh, I felt like Girardi could have stuck by him a little bit more. Uh, when he was doing that, I didn't love the backup and support from the manager, but I'm maybe nitpicking with that. But overall, I thought it was great. Anyone that disagrees with that, I, 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 would love I was, to hear why. I was surprised to see some of the reaction of like, Hey, you're hitting 179. You know, maybe you should do a bit better job at the play. Like I, I was really surprised. I thought it would be universally supported. Now there are the other angle of like, you know, you're saying I loved it. They need more of it. Like, the last thing you need is some 15-year-old kid doing the same thing to an umpire at a high school game or wherever they're playing. Sure. You know, I'm not – I mean, that's a good point. I don't want, uh, you know, any kids doing that and being out of control. But professionals are able to conduct themselves at times a little bit differently. And, and as long as that's communicated to the youth, uh, I, I think that that should be okay. Um, you know, I, I just like the passion. Yeah, I mean, look, I think he was justified in terms of, yeah. although I will say the pitch that he got rung up on, it wasn't egregious. Maybe, yeah, it wasn't the worst of the night, but there were so many bad calls that were so blatantly obvious. I mean, a couple uh, that Milwaukee got called in their favor, I'm blanking on the starter, but even him was, even they were like turned around and looked like, <laughs> like, oh no! Okay, I mean, I'll take the strikeout. Schwarber is you know going off, and there's uh, McCutcheon out in the outfield. Like Bravo, dude! Like I would have because yeah. he got rung up on a call that was pretty bad. There was one that was I got around the guy's like uh, you know chin, and he got punched out on. Uh, I think you know there's a Twitter thing that has everybody's like uh, how many balls and strikes they get right, what percentage. He was at like eighty five percent, which is the lowest I've ever seen. You know, like most of these guys are like 94% that they're right, that they call balls to strike 94 to 95% of the time. They're getting the call right. He was in the 80s, which I've never, I don't think I've ever seen before. 
He punched out six guys on strikes. There was like 16 Philly strikeouts. There was uh, 10 or 12 Brewers strikeouts. I mean, that's just, you know, that's egregious. Yeah, it, it was pretty bad. They, uh, you know, me, you and I, we talked about the officiating in the NBA. And on the ESPN broadcast, they mic'd up Bryce Harper for some dugout interview during the game. I don't know if you caught that. But they asked Bryce... Um, you know, his thoughts on robo umps uh, to, to, you know, try and get more accurate ball and balls and strikes calls. And he was like, he basically said, I, I don't love the idea of that, but, uh, you know, I'll let you guys debate it. What, what, what's your thought on that? Um, I mean, I don't have a huge issue with you're going to have an umpire standing behind home plate and then somebody is going to tell him in his ear whether the pitch was a ball or a strike essentially right yeah that's that's, that's probably be the most realistic yeah that's the way that they've been doing in some of these uh i think the atlantic league does it um now we all take for granted that that strike zone that k zone whatever they put on the tv that that's the strike zone but who determined that that's the strike zone yeah, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I think it's just the most basic, you know, right. uh, dimensions for, for a strike zone. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's like when I was a kid on my wall, I had like this chalk outline drawn on my on my, you know, my, my the side of my house. And that was my strike zone. <laughs> Who's to determine that that strike zone that's up on the screen is the actual what is the real strike zone? Who, who the hell knows? Yeah, no, that's a good point. But isn't that part of the problem? Yeah, but that's been part of the charm of baseball is that every umpire kind of has their own strike zone, and it's up to the pitchers and the hitter to kind of feel them out and determine what it is. And then if a pitcher is getting that strike, you got to keep going after that spot. And then the hitter has to re, you know, adjust by saying, okay, he's been calling this outside pitch all day. I now have to adjust. Yeah, I, I agree. I like that that aspect of the game. It's just the... It's just the times like last night where some are so bad. Yeah, he was And it's bad. not like, all right, it's a half inch, you know, outside lower right portion of the plate. He's calling it. The catcher's doing a great job spotting it consistently. That's fine. But when it's just all over the place, inconsistent, up and down, egregious, uh, egregious calls, that's the issue. All right. Uh, by the way, I feel like the National League players don't like the DH. Why do you, why do you say well, that? Well, like Yelich, they said he hates it. He was 0 for 4 with four strikeouts. Last night he struck out two more times. Harper has kind of said he doesn't like doing it either. Uh, he has kind of made that vocal that I don't want to be sitting here doing nothing. Uh, but that's something we can get in another time. All right. That's, uh, all we got this hour. Uh, check out the Philadelphia City Cast wherever you get your podcast. Download that each and every day. Ryan Rothstein's the host. He's at Wise Rye on Twitter. Sixers. Raptors tonight, game five, eight o'clock on 97.3 ESPN. All right, man. See you later. All right. When we come back next hour, who is the guy the Eagles won at 15? That's next. 97.3 ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for Football at Four with Jeff Mosier. I think our track record in the last 20 years, how many NFC's titles, playoff appearances, and appearances in the NFC Championship game, those are some of the metrics I look at, and um, I'll compare our record with uh, almost anybody. Powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Now, live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios.
Pros. This is Football at Four. Football at Four is powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. It's brought to you by PropSwap, America's sports betting marketplace. Sell your sports bets, take your profit, find out how. Go to PropSwap.com, download the PropSwap app today. It is draft week. So we will try to decipher what is real, what is not. You'll start to hear a bunch of stuff. What are we hearing? What do we know? Jeff Mosher, InsideTheBirds.com, and the Inside the Birds podcast is back after a much-needed vacation. Welcome back, man. You picked the perfect time. Draft week. Did you strategically pick to come back during draft week? Uh, Of course. (laughs) I strategically lined up the whole school calendar that had vacation last week. And, you know, between Easter, Passover, however they they figure it out, I did that all. Nice. Good (laughs) job out of you. Well, you're here for draft week. Here we go. A lot of stuff to kind of dive into. I want to start with something that might be a little uh, interesting under the radar here, which is uh, the team signed uh, the tender for Nate Herbig the other day. And uh, I'm interested to see what the meaning of the timing on that is. Andre Dillard, Nate Herbig. Are those guys' names? I mean, Herbig, there is something to do with why they signed it when they did, correct? I mean, if they have to trade him, I think he has to be, that tender needs to be signed. And I guess there are some murmurs that people are interested and have called the team about him. So if they want to trade him, he would have to have signed that deal ahead of time, right? Right, because he was a, re- he was a restricted free agent who the team put a tender on, a tag on which means they retain his rights so long as he signs the tender, which he did. If he does not sign the tender, it's not like, oh, he's just a free agent, you know, you know. it's it's just it, that, that doesn't work that way where anybody could be able to sign him. Right. So they would have to uh, rescind that tender. Right. So he signs that today, which would mean if teams are calling about Nate Herbig on draft night, he would be a guy, Andre Dillard, I guess we've already, you guys have talked a lot about uh, on whether or not teams would be calling for him. I would imagine uh, that if teams need offensive line help, Philadelphia is a spot that they would be on the phone with. You can imagine that and it would make sense. You know, we've talked about Andre Dillard, Nate Herbig, certainly. Uh, Isaac Sayamalu is a guy who is... You know, a, a starter who's not supposed to lose his job from injury, but Landon Dickerson took over as a second-round pick at left guard, played really well there. There is an opening at right guard, conceivably, um, but he'd still have to, you know, fend off Jack Driscoll, who, you know, we'll see how he comes back from the injury that he had at the end of the year, but uh, Nate Herbig. And um, I can say this with with a very good amount of confidence, that interior offensive line, is very likely to be an area that the Eagles address at some point during the draft. First round? No, probably not. Um, Tyler Linderbaum, of course, will be on everybody's, you know, board in some capacity, but I don't, I don't see that happening in the first round for the Eagles unless it's a scenario where everybody else who they have rated in that area or higher is gone. But, uh, I do think that round three, round four is a good round to look at. For the Eagles uh, when it comes to interior offensive line prospects. Yeah, and uh, I guess a lot of it is how they view inside the organization, Jeff, who the next center is. Is he a guy that's already on this roster, be it Dickerson, Sayamalu, somebody else, or do they feel like at some point when Kelsey does retire, and that's going to be sooner than later, that that person needs to be drafted and groomed to take over that role? Yeah, there was a point in time where they did feel that Isaac Sayamalu could be a successor. You know, when they drafted him, certainly because he had that versatility and the athleticism to be able to play center, even if he started off his career 
at guard. Uh, you remember he struggled in 2017, his second year. He lost his job after two games to Stefan Wisniewski. They go on to win the Super Bowl. Comes back in 2018, starts um, 13, plays 13 games, started nine, played fairly well, played really well in 2019 as well. But 12 total games in 2020 and 2021, Mike, has changed the story about what they can fairly expect from Isaac Sayamalu just from a health and durability standpoint. And what was once seen as a very logical successor to Jason Kelsey, you now have to wonder if he can be because Jason Kelsey has been pretty durable, um, especially in the second part of his career here. Isaac Sayamalu has not. Yeah, you're right about that. Sayamalu has uh, had various injuries. And, and again, you, you mentioned it. Uh, well, are they going to open up right guard and say, hey, Sayamala, Jack Driscoll, Nate Herbig, you guys battle it out over there? Um, or do they, or, or do they value getting something in return for one of those guys? Would they rather the competition and the depth? The depth mm-hmm. helped them out last year. Um, or would they rather get something in return? Because as you mentioned, well, I wouldn't be surprised if they took an interior lineman there. You've got Herbert, you've got Driscoll, you've got Samuel, you've got Dickerson. That's four guys. I mean, I don't know who else off the top of my head that I'm forgetting about, but you know, they might say, Hey, we have enough depth at that spot if we just keep everybody. Well, they clearly, if they're, if they're, you know, looking at this draft to get another interior offensive lineman who can play guard and then maybe kick to center. Then they clearly see the bigger picture, and that's the depth that they have is depth right now. Nate Herbig is only here for a year on, on a one-year tender, if they keep him right. Jason Kelsey is very, very, very likely. I know we said this last year, but very likely you have to approach every year with him as it's a one-year deal his last year. So that's two guys who potentially won't be here next year. Um, and then, of course, you know, Sayamalo, as I mentioned, has the injury history, and if he's available, because he has a team-friendly contract, a good, good contract, other teams might be calling the Eagles about him. And if they unload him, then all of a sudden you're not as deep on the interior as you once were. So some of that is uh, cart before horse and chicken versus egg. Right mm-hmm. now, looks different than, say, Friday or Saturday if they do draft an interior offensive lineman. Then Sayamalo becomes even more expendable if that's what they want to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, the team always looks to upgrade the offensive line. And if they do bring in another one through the draft – then it to me it would signal that they will probably look to move Sayamalo if they don't wind up moving him before the end of the draft. Yeah. Obviously, Jeff, a receiver in the first round, indeed they could go that route. Jalen Rager, he would probably be available via trade, but if they want a receiver at number fifteen, that seems to be see if you agree right around where the run of receivers could start. So, in other words, if Howie wants a receiver, it seems that he could have the pick of which one he wants. How many receivers do you think, you know, will be off the board by the time they pick at 15? It's a great question. We had our annual Inside the Birds NFL mock draft, first-round mock draft, come out today. Myself, Adam Kaplan, Andrew Ducheco. And when we got to 15, Garrett Wilson was still on the board. So um, not to, I guess, I guess I'm playing a little spoiler. The Eagles have two picks, so I won't tell you who they got in the second one, but you have to listen to the pod. But that's a pretty good, I, I came away thinking that the board, we the way we predicted just seemed to fall that way, but I would be sort of surprised if Garrett Wilson made it out of the top 10 to 12. And I, 
I would also be in, in our mock. We had the Falcons taking Jamison um, Williams from okay. Alabama. I was going to. So say- I think the run will actually start a little bit earlier. Okay, because uh, I don't know if you saw um, Todd McShay. His draft buzz is that mm-hmm. the Eagle. He's hearing from NFL executives that the Eagles' preference is to take Jamison Williams at number fifteen. Well, I hardly think the Eagles are telling other NFL executives who exactly they want to take. Um, I can imagine. No, but that could just be from, hey, my feeling from talking to them, knowing Howie, he's been there long enough. I kind of can get a feel on him. I'm imagining that's where these, you know, feelings are coming from. They're right. Yes, of course. You know, when Howie has to talk to other teams about trade up possibilities, what the question he has to answer, you don't just have to tell who you're trade up for. But the team wants to know, is it quarterback? You know, because obviously the, the price gets higher there. Um, and then the team likes to know maybe whether it's an offensive guy or a defensive guy just to, to kind of measure whether or not they want to move out of that slot or not. And, and you kind of have to be honest because if you, if you tell a team, oh, I'm thinking of an offensive player and then you go and take a defensive end, you're never going to have to, uh, the ability to make a nice trade with that team again. You can't, you know, burn bridges like that. So. You have to be somewhat honest. Now, the thing about Howie and the Eagles is that they will explore multiple opportunities. So they may be calling up, telling one team, trade up, looking at offense, wide receiver. They may be talking to another team, trade up, defense, secondary type thing as well, which is why you probably have also seen reports about a potential trade up for Sauce Gardner. So uh, I'm not saying that the reports are wrong. I'm just saying that every every stone is going to be turned here. Um, in trade-up scenarios to see which kind of players they can get. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, shouldn't be surprised that the Eagles, who have done a lot of homework on wide receivers, would like Jamison Williams. Yeah, and, I mean, we know with Howie Roseman, he's always ready to pull the trigger on a trade. You know, the Eagles can move up or down with both of their picture. I mean, at 15, they can move up. They could be at 18 and decide to move back. I mean, so they have two spots that they can either move up or the second one say, you know what, I guess I got 15, I don't need 18, I'll move back. Which I think of the two, which is moving 15 up or 18 back, which is more of a possibility for you? 18 back. Yeah, I agree. 18 back. I, I think that, you know, if the trade isn't there to be made to go up for whatever reason, then you can sit there at 15 and say, probably going to be three or four guys that, that I, that I'll be happy with at that spot. And then to pick again, a couple of picks later, um, knowing that this draft is, it, it might be a little bit short on elite talent, but it's long on good players, just good players who are going to be impact players, you know, key role players, starters. They may not make two or three pro bowls, but they will be pretty good players for you. This draft is good for that. And the Eagles need, we talked about this right before vacation. The Eagles have like an elite blue chip player in Darius Slay, who's older, and Javon Hargrave. And then you look at some of their defense and you think they don't even have, they go from elite to just like replacement level really quickly. They need some of that in between, like those good starters who are going to be good for you uh, for a couple of years, right? They may not be pro bowlers, but they're not very easily replaceable yeah. either. And that's where the Eagles really need to capitalize. What's more likely for you, Jeff? Marcus mm-hmm. Epps and Anthony Harris are the starters or that somebody is taken in one of the first two nights and that person is one of the starters at safety? <sighs> a, Marcus Epps and Anthony Harris are the starters. Right, <laughs> because if they take a guy on... I'm just going with the history of the Eagles there. Yeah, because if they take a guy on Saturday, 
you know, you would imagine that that guy's probably not ready to supplant Anthony Harris or Marcus Epps. Well, it all depends on how the board falls, you know, and who who it is that they're taking. But you're right. I mean, theoretically, uh, Kevon Wallace is a guy they got on a Saturday a couple of years ago for a fourth round pick. And he has not been ready. He's just not the guy uh, yet and probably won't be. But Jack Driscoll is a guy they got in the fourth round. And he was ready to he started the as a rookie of the season opener at right tackle. So and but not because he was great, but because of injuries. But still, I mean, he was a guy who they that's a liked early on. That's a different position, well. though. It is a different position. I mean, yeah. an offensive yeah. lineman. If you told me, "Hey, I got a fifth round pick," I have some expectation that he could play, especially in the interior part of the line. Yeah, I would say you tell me a safety you know. is in the fifth round. I'm going to have a hard time thinking the safety is going to supplant somebody right off the bat. That's fair. Although I, I, I would say with the Eagles, when you're when you're battling against you know, Marcus Epps, who, who they like and who I've liked, um, and Anthony Harris, your bar to, to, to like really exceed and maybe get into that starting lineup is, is a lot different than, say, if you're a fifth-round pick on the Ravens trying to make it. Yeah. Um, I do want to we, – we, we touch on wide receiver in the draft. Obviously, J.J. Ortega-Whiteside has been a failed wide receiver. How realistic is this experiment of moving to the tight end? Is this just a – we don't even care. Just try that. And if it works, great. If not, we were planning on cutting you anyway. The funny thing is I feel like it's just a change in title and classroom and position coach because if you look at it, he was an interior wide receiver who did a lot, who was only on the field for blocking out of the 11 personnel. Yeah, out of to a be, to out be fair. So he was a tight end. To be fair, year. though, he's 6'2", 225. He's a small tight end. Yes. Yeah, he's a small tight end. So we'll see if this involves any weight gain or if they just want him to be kind of a flex tight end, which is really what he was last last year anyway, right. but more as a blocker. So, I, again, I, I think it really – it to me, when this happens, nine times out of ten, it means that you're not going to be on the team. They're right. just, uh, you know, throwing something against the wall. I thought that about Jannard Avery last year, but they figured out a role for him because he actually fit what they needed – sort of in the scheme last year, but that was only a one year thing for him too. So let me ask you something about Ortega White. I mean, I do remember having that one big catch. He was kind of inside the hashes. Is he so bad that there is no role for him? I mean, he's a big physical guy. One of the reasons they liked him, he had catch radius. He was able to kind of go up and make plays at Stanford. You know, he was a really good player there. Okay, he's not a burner. He's a tough kid, but is he so bad that he can't be a slot guy, or that he couldn't be a a tight end that is more of a receiver? You know, they're like a. I know he's not Darren Waller. That guy's six six two forty five, but an athletic guy who creates problems underneath. Like, is he just so inept that he doesn't have the skill set to give you anything in the receiving game? Uh, the best way I can answer that, Mike, is that he's been on the team for three years. They have not been blessed with great wide receiver talent for most of those three years. Right. They put him on the field quite a bit the first two years. And, and like you said, there, there was the splash play here and there, but he doesn't run well. Um, his thing was supposed to be, as you just said, contested catch, catch radius. I can't say you've seen enough of that acumen where he's like a Anquan Bolden type of player that compensates with not much speed with just 
amazing ability to do those things. So, it you know, he's been there at practice every single day. It's not like, uh, you know, they haven't seen enough of J.J. Ortega-Whiteside. Mm-hmm. Right. So the answer is no, he can't play. Yeah. I'm, I'm going uh, to no, – no, could he go to – like Mac Hollins. Look, let's remember Mac Hollins, right? He went seven straight weeks playing – I forget. He played like a starter number of snaps for three, two or three years ago for the Eagles. And it was almost like a record. I think he had like no targets yeah. in those seven weeks. And, and it was, can he play or not play? Well, it didn't look like he can play. He's not – it's not like he's out of the league. I mean, he's a fourth wide receiver or a fifth wide receiver. And every once in a while, you saw him on the Dolphins making – a play, but the bottom line is he's not a good enough wide receiver. So I, can J.J. Ortega-Whiteside go somewhere and make a few plays every once in a while? Maybe. Put him with a great quarterback? Perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you're going to see some kind of renaissance somewhere else. Um, of the receivers that are available, do you have one in this draft that you think fits across from Smith better than... I mean, because you might say, I like yes. Jameson Williams but he's not the right fit. Or I like Garrett Wilson, but he's not the right. Like, do you have a guy that you think is the ideal fit? Yes. I think somebody who has size is the ideal fit. Because if you look at the wide receivers the Eagles have, whether it's Devontae Smith, who certainly is not a, a size receiver. Um, Jalen Rager is fighting to make the team and being on the team. But he's more when he when he, what he was supposed to be was a speed vertical threat. Quez Watkins, speed vertical threat. They don't have in their wide receiver core, other than J.J. Ortega-Whiteside, who's probably not going to be on the team, a real sort of Alshon Jeffrey-like guy, a size guy. And with this quarterback, Jalen Hurts, as someone put it to me, it's better to have a bigger body with a good catch radius, a wide catch radius. So maybe two weeks ago, I wouldn't have talked to you about um, uh, the USC kid, Drake uh, London. London. Yep. Yeah, but... Now I look at it and say Drake London, Traylon Brooks, those guys who are physical and have some size, uh, probably makes sense for what the Eagles might want to do offensively at that X position. So, uh, yeah, I think those two guys would fit. All right. So it's Monday, just back tomorrow. So we'll have more to talk about. And um, Monday, your your feeling would be 15-18, yes, or a trade? A trade. Okay. Well, we'll see if you change your mind once you sleep on it tonight. Make a couple, all right. make a couple calls. All right, I will do that. <laughs> Jeff Bocher, uh listen to the Inside the Birds podcast, uh, their mock draft special, and um, Jeff's back tomorrow. Adam is here Wednesday, Andrew Thursday on draft day, and uh, to recap it all, Adam will be back on Friday to give us his thoughts on the Eagles' first round preview, round number two. Football at four has you all week long. Draft week is here. He is Jeff Mosher from InsideTheBirds.com and the Inside the Birds podcast. All right, Jeff. See you, brother. All right, that's Jeff Mosher, and that is Football at Four here on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Hey, we are live on Thursday at Slack Tide Brewery for the Eagles draft party. It starts at 2 at Slack Tide in Cape May Courthouse. Reminds you to always drink responsibly. And, hey, we have all our qualifiers. We're going to see them all out there. But if you didn't get a chance to qualify... You can do so right now by going to our website, 973ESPN.com, and fill out the form and come on out on Thursday and be a part of the show. You can win great prizes, including an Eagles road trip. 
We want to see you out there. Eagles draft party this Thursday. Two picks. Jeff just says trade. I probably agree with them. And I think a trade back is the most likely scenario. That's just my feeling on Monday. I could change overnight. We got Sixers and Raptors for you tonight. Later on tonight, we'll talk more NFL with Jeff Kerr. There was a trade in the NFL just a couple minutes ago. The Patriots trading a fifth-round pick for a six and a seven. Hmm. Patriots hate fifth-round picks. They always try to get rid of fifth. They're looking for another Brady in round six. More Sports Bash on the way. When we come back, Josh has his headlines from the weekend that was. And Paul Hudrick will talk a little Sixers-Raptors game five. I hope you'll stay. This is the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Now, Bash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. What to tell you about Caesar Sportsbook? It's giving out first bet insurance for all new users up to $1,100. Download the app and use promo code Radio CZR. That's one word, Radio CZR. And then place your first bet. If you win, congrats. But if not, you'll get your wager back as a free bet. Must be 21 and physically present in New Jersey. New users only bet amount of qualifying wager returned only if the wager is settled as a loss. Paid as a single bet credit. Must be used within 14 days. See Caesars.com slash promos for full terms. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER in New York. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369-CAESARS. Sportsbook. Downloaded people. Josh Hennings, my producer. What do we know? Well, you mentioned Caesars there, so I'll go with this story first for you. On Sunday night, Caesars Sportsbook has changed the betting odds favorite for the number one overall pick. For months, it was Aiden Hutchinson. He is now at plus 160, at previously minus 170 before the start of the weekend. But 36% of all bets have come in either, quote, pro Walker or anti Hutchinson, according to Max Myers, spokesman for Caesars. Walker of Georgia is now the odds-on favorite at minus 200. Before the weekend, he was plus 150. Yeah, I saw him kind of gaining on Friday. He was gaining, gaining, gaining. Now he's passed. So uh, is that is that enough for you to think that Hutchinson won't go number one now? I think it's fair enough to say that if you or someone who is considering making a bet on Hutchinson to be the first overall pick, you should definitely walk away from that because one of the things they said here is that there are what they're calling anti-Hutchinson picks. So people are basically betting against him being the first overall pick. So you have to... Now, of course, we know all bets are not equal. You know, the public money versus the sharp money are two different things. But there is speculation that the sharp money on the weekend is starting the trend to Walker after Trent Balky over the weekend basically told the media that they have four guys that are looking at, and Walker was one of them with Hutchinson. This is where the whole betting thing, being legal, which I don't have a problem with or anything, but you're really crossing a possible line here. 
You mean in terms of like, like information getting out? Like if I'm Trent Balky, can't I tell my friend? Can't I tell somebody? Hey, this is who we're picking. You could, but at the same time, you know what is the value of Balky telling the media then that we're looking at four guys if they aren't legitimately looking at four guys? Doesn't he want to maintain maintain some sort of value in case someone comes up and trades for it? Well, I'm just saying on draft night, like draft. Hey, before we make this pick, I'm going to let you know. I'm not trading it. This is who we're taking. I mean, he theoretically could. I mean, there's a lot of speculation out there that... And he could have done that already, and that's what changes, you know, then it might right. change, but that could be where they set these lines on based on that kind of information. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of speculation, for example, out there that a guy like Floyd Mayweather for years has been telling people to make bets who are his friends, like what round he's going with, going to decision or not. So, I mean, there is a little history of some uh, chicanery going on. Yeah, well, I'll say this. I definitely think that Hutchinson, I wouldn't take him number one. I would say that, but would he go number two? Michigan, Detroit has the second pick. I would have traded out if I'm one of these two teams. That would be my preference. Well, there is time for them to still do that. Yep. We can see what happens. By the way, speaking of the draft, Mm -hmm. uh, reports are that it may take up to two first-round picks to land Debo Samuel in a trade. That's per Albert Breer. Would you be interested in him for two first-round picks? No. Too much. From the Godfather, in a word, no. First of all, Debo is not even considered the best receiver in the league. He's what, like top 10? But Is he better than every receiver in this draft? Uh, I mean, he's... It's hard because... Remember we had the conversation last week that the reports are he doesn't want to be used as much as a running back? So isn't part of his value is the fact that he does all these different things? If you make him just a route runner, I think he's in the same category with these other running backs in the draft. If he's willing to do all the other stuff, then he's definitely better than the running backs in this draft. Well, I don't think teams need to use him as a straight running back, hand the ball off to him between the tackles. But using him in jet sweeps and utilizing that ability, I think, is necessity. Because you don't one, have to have him be a single setback. Right. Well, because one of the demerits against this draft class is the guy who was supposed to be the consensus number one guy, Jamison Williams, is not going to be drafted top 10 because of his injury. What do you make of that uh, McShay stuff today? I think it's very intriguing that the Eagles are still focusing so much on wide receiver, don't you? Oh, I totally expect that. Is it expected, or is it more of like, okay, I, I kind of well, see here's what's going why. on here. Because at 15 and 18, I think the best receivers are still going to be on the board. You're not talking about falling to the secondary group of guys. Right. You're not dropping from, like, when they drafted Rager, they took the secondary group of guys. And now Jefferson ended up being better than them all. But he wasn't mentioned with Henry Ruggs and Jerry Judy and uh, C.D. Lamb. Right. It was those three, and then the drop-off. Jefferson was like the next guy, but he wasn't mentioned in the group of the three. This group of five guys, it seems that you 
Everybody has a different flavor that you like. Well, Jameson Williams is more of a smaller slot guy, a lot of speed, explosion, 20 yards against. Traylon Burks, bigger body, can do, you know, is, is the big physical guy. Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave. There's like five guys, and they're all probably going to be available at 15. And maybe, okay, maybe two of them are off the board, but you're still going to have your pick of three of these five guys that any one of the five might be someone's favorite. In that other draft class, I don't think anyone had a receiver other than Lamb, Judy, or Ruggs listed as the best guy. That's the difference. I'm going to stick with the NFL here. Another story that came out. Did you see this story about Amazon in the NFL? Does that have to do with streaming? Uh, Yes. So according to NBC's Sports Peter King, Amazon is pushing the NFL ahead of their schedule release to schedule one game on Black Friday this year. We've talked about this before. Jimmy Train has brought this up, remember? Well, he draw up as a as an idea. Well, he's right. He said on his podcast, the uh, Sports Illustrated Sports Media podcast, is that they should have a game on Black Friday every year. The concern, according to Peter King from the NFL, is this creates another short week scenario for two teams in a scheduling system that's built around Thursdays and not Fridays. Because as we know, one team plays Thursday every year, minimum, right? So you build your bye weeks and your off time around those Thursday nights. So now the NFL would have to create an entirely new scenario for this Black Friday. So there might be some logistical issues here. But Amazon wants to brand Black Friday as part of their Amazon Prime package. It's a like, great idea, and they should. But that whole logistical problem, I guess somebody smarter than me can figure that out. I mean, I'm sure there's a way to figure it out, but I do think it's interesting that the news is coming out now. Well, the NFL is going to do their schedule release and all that stuff. What do you think of this? We talked about three games on Christmas Day. Here's a question. What would you rather have, Eagles on Christmas Day or Sixers on Christmas Day? Sixers. Because to me, Christmas is an NBA day. Historically. Not, Not for long. Not for long because everybody's going to Christmas now. It's like it's like a new Should. thing now. Should who's leaving the house on Christmas? Oh well, the fine leaving the house. I mean, we all know people travel for the holiday. Yeah, but most you know. you're traveling to go to somebody's house. Right, you're going to somebody's house, but you know now Once you got to factor in a whole new set of timing for your holiday schedule. Yeah, you know now it's a whole other layer of. What Dad if you get both? It, I got I got a schedule around the you know. What if you get both of them? Get a little Sixers at noon, Eagles at 4.30. Well, I mean, I personally love that idea. Vice versa. I think there's a lot of people out there that would be uh, straining with their family members, let's say. (laughs) See this news? Could be a little trade in the uh, broadcast world. I did not see this. Looks like Drew Brees could go from NBC to Fox. Now, that's interesting because we saw that Drew Brees had that one game where he was horrible. Yep. Does Fox say we can do a better job with Drew Brees than I don't NBC know what, does? They haven't named their number one analyst yet. That's right. They gave Burkhart the number one play-by-play, but they haven't made Olsen the number one guy for the analyst job yet. And I was so they're trying the, to. Feels like they're trying to do something behind the scenes. 
I read an interview with Burkhardt where he said that no one mentioned to him about the, the color job, that everything was talked to him about him being the play-by-play. No one talked to him about who his partner would be. Mike, do you know who Nasir Cunningham is? No. He is the number one high school basketball recruit for the 2024 class. Well, he has decided to sign with overtime elite, but with a catch. He is trying to maintain his college eligibility and sign with overtime elite. Now, for those who don't know, overtime elite is the alternative to the G League program where guys can go from high school to learn how to be a pro. They were called Ignite. Yeah, G League Ignite, yes. The, the team is called G League Ignite, but it's in they play in the G League. Got it. Overtime Elite is like the alternative to that program. And they've been trying really hard to market themselves as a non-NBA option. Well, now Cunningham is trying to leverage his situation by foregoing being paid at all to play for this overtime elite, which maintains his college eligibility after graduating from high school. He will be eligible to make money off of his name due to NIL, but because he will not be paid by overtime elite, he could choose to actually go to a college team after one year with overtime elite. So he doesn't want to play high school anymore. I've been wondering, when is this going to happen? When there's a high school player who now thinks it's he doesn't want to play four years of high school anymore. That's the next thing. That is the next piece of the puzzle. Paul Hudrick joins me next to talk a little Sixers and Raptors. Stick around. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Just after 5 on the Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. What's up, everybody? You heard Sunday Night Baseball last night right here on 97.3 ESPN. And Saturday afternoon, the Phillies and the Brewers. Doug Glanville was on the call, former Philly. He is set to join us. Give us a little more insight on what he saw early in the season. We know. However, this Phillies team was supposed to be a team with bad defense and a lot of offense. A one nothing game last night, exactly the opposite. The team has struggled offensively. We'll get uh, Doug's perspective on what he saw all weekend long at Citizens Bank Park as Doug Glanville joins us right now, ESPN. And, of course, uh, the Phillies fall two out of three to the Brewers this weekend up at Citizens Bank Park. Doug, welcome back, man. How you been? Good to be back. How you doing, man? All is good. And uh, I know uh, always nice to have you back in Philly and get a chance to uh, see your old stomping grounds. But, man, you're taking a look at a team that I'm sure when you look at that lineup last night, you're like, man, this is a team that's got a lot going for it offensively. But you saw them all weekend long. What do you see? Why is this team struggling to kind of get that big night going offensively? Yeah, no, there's no doubt that rhythm, you know, they don't have the rhythm yet. And the tough part about having a team that is so offensive minded and driven by that is it's streaky. You know, we know that you run up against a team like the Brewers who are known for excellent pitching. You have Josh Hader closing it out, Devin Williams. You know, those are tough. Those guys can shut down good hitting. So you still have to do those little things. You still have to figure out how to manufacture runs against certain teams when your bats aren't exactly on fire. 
And that's what, why it becomes important to have a different type of offense that has other looks. Even though they are bashers, when they're not bashing, they can still you know, go first to third. They can still squeak one across. And you know, when you see that they have three stolen bases, things like that, there's not a lot of versatility to that. So you end up being stuck on the, the three-run homer and, and that kind of game. So if you're going to do that, you have to make sure you're pitching uh, keeps runs off the board as well. I want to get into the pitching in just a bit, but you, you kind of talk about, you know, so it's kind of a one-dimensional offense. You know, it's a lot of strikeouts. They're a, they're a put-the-ball-over-the-fence type of team, and if they're kind of going through a lull, you're going to see a lot of non-run-producing uh, innings from them. Not a lot of crooked numbers, as they would say. So you're very prone to a lot of uh, nights where you're going to see stuff like that, where you see these elongated droughts a little bit. And yeah, the way to counter that is, and I do think they have the talent to do this, is you have a guy like Zach Wheeler, you have Aaron Nola pitched the way he did. Like You, you can shut them down uh, with, I think, what could be a pretty good rotation. You're going to need the bullpen to step it up. And we know defense won't be their strong point, but if you can pitch and score enough runs, especially when you're home where you got that last opportunity, you can still win a, you know, quite a few ball games. So it's going to come down to the same elements, right? You have to pitch. And although they're not saying that, you know, defense is going to be what is going to be the game changer, they, you know, they have enough offense that they're planning to, you know, outbash the other team. The challenge is when you face the Brewers team that is built for pitching and run prevention, you have to play a, almost a different ball game. And, you know, that that's where it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. I want to ask, uh, ask you about the pitching that you saw this weekend. Nola, he has been the, uh, that guy who everybody um, has been waiting and waiting, and they're not sure. In 2018, he's third in the Cy Young race, and then he's kind of just been this up-and-down guy, and it almost feels like, Doug, people were ready to kind of give up on him. Eh, he's not a top-of-the-rotation guy. Now, the guy you saw last night certainly was, but he has been pretty inconsistent. What do you see from Nola uh, so far You know, in this young season? What's tough about evaluating, it's like the Lauer, the pitcher for the Brewers last night. You know, that's a guy that when you dig behind the numbers, you see someone who was deeply affected in 2020 with COVID and, and the pandemic, lost some time, just all kinds of rhythm issues. His velocity went up, but partly he finally just got healthy and was in the chance to be able to get a normal season. So, you know, a lot of guys got derailed in the last two years that you can't really tell who they are. Uh, Kirsten Yelich. I mean, there's a long list of these guys, right? So, so I look at Nola, still a guy that's top of rotation. He has the stuff. He showed it yesterday for sure. And it is consistency and, and sometimes consistently relates to the fact that it's been pretty much an interrupted last couple of years. Even with a 2020 full season, you're still dealing with COVID protocols, still just got a lot of stuff going on. Um, so with Nola, what you saw, Last night was a guy with a great changeup, good curveball, location, used the fastball, stayed out of the middle. And although he's topping 92, you know, when he needed to, you know, get it, get a little more pump, he would do it. So, you know, Nola can be that, you know, a guy that, especially when you have Wheeler, number two in the Cy Young voting last year, those are, you know, those are two starters that a lot of teams would be very much happy with. No doubt. 
And uh, Wheeler, I mean, obviously, uh, he got off to a slow start this year. There was a lot of discussion, I think, during the broadcast last night, too, about how his miles per hour has been down, two miles per hour, and he didn't get off uh, spring training. He didn't get a chance to face any major league hitters. Did we see a guy who seems like he is now catching up? Because there was some concern that, you know, he, he had a he got a late start because he, he was, you know, had some soreness in his shoulder. But was that apparent at all from what you saw this weekend? Good velocity. I mean, it wasn't 99, but he was it's number 97, 96. He was up there, mm-hmm. and he relied a lot on his fastball. And when we talked to Craig Council, the manager of the Brewers, after facing him the next day, he said that, well, we thought we could possibly catch him. You know, remember last year, Wheeler dominated the Brewers, just destroyed them. And he wasn't quite that guy. He was, you know, strong. But then that one inning where really a secondary pitches, curveball, those, they started to hang out over the plate. That's where he got really beat. Uh, but it's like to the point, short spring training and a team that is relying on offense as much as the, you know, as much as the Phillies are relying on it. And you have a scenario, you know, you have a scenario where you have pitchers that are going to be, you know, need to be at their top line and you have a spring training that's shortened and you're saying, Oh, in May, they're going to find their rhythm. That's where you kind of run into those challenges because they can't afford to be like, Oh, let's like get everybody back on track. And the next thing you look up, you're 45 days into the season. So they still have to find other ways to, to win these ball games. Uh, Doug Glanville is our guest ESPN uh, baseball. And of course uh, the Phillies lose two out of three. I want to get your take on, Alec Bohm uh, obviously struggles in the field, and it has been a major struggle to the fact that he essentially lost his job. He essentially has now hit himself back into that job. Um, so what do you make of this? This guy's a third pick over in the draft. And I know in baseball, it's not like football and basketball. When you hear a guy is the number three overall pick, you expect an instant kind of change to your organization or franchise. What do you see from Bohm as what kind of player you envision him as? It's hard not to look at him and see Jason Worth, and it's probably not fair because it's just more of a, a physical, tall guy with, you know, uses the whole field, potentially has that ability to, you know, hit and got some pop and just can, you know, has enough athleticism. You, you know, you see some of that. Uh, I, I think he's, you know, not quite, you know, hit his stride where he needs to be offensively. And the same story, like you have a guy who's drafted. You know, relatively recently, and then went through these interrupted seasons. It is kind of hard to see when he's going to gel and, and get there because it's it's still like a growth period, and a lot of people are trying to come back from this rhythmless last couple of years. But yeah, he you know he he had his problems and challenge with the fans. He kind of made his point, and, <laughs> and but the fans, Philly, just said, "Look, I'm gonna let you know about yourself, but we appreciate your honesty." We just want you to be accountable to, to really care about the game, yeah. play hard, respect us, and, you know, we got your back. So that could have been you know, a good watershed moment. If there's any question about will the Philly fans not notice if you're not playing hard or playing well, well, that was answered. Well, <laughs> really, I was, was going to really, say, Doug, really you, know, you know what it's like to play here. You know the fans very well. When that whole thing went down, I kind of mentioned the same thing. Like maybe this is like the aha moment for him of – they're not booing me personally. They're booing the result of the play. And if you could kind of understand that, maybe that can kind of help you get past all of the that relationship with the fans that so many players who come here do struggle with. I I loved it. I didn't, you know, I mean, look, I grew up a Phillies fan, so it would almost be like 
not liking myself because I, I was a Philly <laughs> fan growing up. So it, it never made sense to me anyway because I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, Philly's had you know, great years in the 70s, early 80s and so on. But I, I, it was pretty simple for me. I, I knew play hard, run out every ball, play defense, you know, you know, and even if you're not like a lot rah-rah guy, I wasn't really rah-rah. I, I wanted to make sure you could see in my effort <clears throat> and and the fact that all through my whole career as a, as a Philly, I was a fan of Philly. I was a Philly fan still. And, um, and look, they got on me. You know, I, I misread the ball, got a bad read on that play with Eric Milton in the no-hitter. And, 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 you know, it was upsetting that I, I got booed and, and I got thrown at. Uh, well, the, the pitcher threw it sort of towards me because I was bunting the next inning, and I had to go on my back to get out of the way, and they cheered. I wasn't happy, but I knew exactly where it was coming from. You know, right. so yeah. So, like you said, like they, I, you know, messed up a no hitter. Um, you know, and I did get the bunt down, and we actually won the game. So <laughs> that was my sort of best way to be like, okay, I hear you. So you know, it is part of it. But I look at all the years of so many moments that were positive and we didn't have great teams, but, um, you know, you remember those too. So yeah, that's, that's how I see it. And, you know, maybe it's cause I grew up, uh, you know, I grew up outside of New York. Yeah. I, I got the city world and all that, but, uh, I, I, you know, I think Boehm figured it out. He knows he, what he said in his responses was, was really, you know, well, yeah, thing. he, and he got a standing and, ovation. So it seems that the fans yeah. are like, Hey, we appreciate that yeah. you notice that we, you know, and I, and I, and I said that could, and he has played pretty well since he, you know, he was out of the lineup and then Girardi kind of put him back. He didn't play for like three days after that. And then he put him back in. Now he's been in every day. He's back in the lineup tonight. By the way, the Phillies have just sent Bryson Stott to Lehigh Valley and they have called up Roman mm-hmm. Quinn. And that obviously, you know, Quinn has been another enigma here and he was gone and they brought him back. But they have had all sorts of issues in center field, and their corner outfielders we know are not their strong suit. So essentially, it looks like they needed another glove out in the outfield. Well, in the end, look if you're going to bet on Kyle Schwarber and Castellanos as your corner outfielders, like, those guys care. They work hard. There's going to be no issue there. But you know they're not they're not naturally gifted defenders. They're 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 going to grind it out, and they're not going to have a ton of range as well in the way that you need to be like a, you know, super plus on the defensive side. So you need a center fielder that's going to catch the ball. And just like the last couple of years, they haven't had a lot of success in generating offense out of center field. But in this case, when you go get those kind of bashers, it's not as important. You could kind of deal without a big home run production out of center, just catch the ball and cover the corners, cover for the corner guys. That's, that's going to be enough. So I, I think you'll see a revolving door, door Herrera and all these cats and Vierling and, you know, you'll see it and, you know, maybe someone comes out of the ashes, but it's a great opportunity because they have, you know, whoever takes the horns, you know, the reins, of center field, it's going to be a great opportunity to play if you just can catch the ball, play some D. Yeah, and I, and I guess I asked you this question, you know, with uh, that was one of the topics of uh, conversation over at ESPN.com. They were talking about it on the Sunday Night Baseball broadcast. I'm sure you guys uh, discussed it over the weekend on the broadcast is the Phillies are well aware that people don't think they're very good defensively. How do they take a look at themselves defensively? Well, we talked to Joe Girardi before or after the game, you know, both both days. And, you know, what he says is that, you know, their team, he's not saying that they have a team that has tremendous range and, you know, sort of making the spectacular long-range play. So where, where do you make up for that? Well, 
you you shift and you have you understand your defensive alignment and you have a high defensive efficiency, meaning the players that are hit to you that are out, you convert. So he believes, and I think that's, you know, for now, I think it's a reasonable way to look at it. Catch the ball, you're supposed to catch. I'm not saying you have to be Ozzie Smith out there, but if, if you do that and you get the bats and you get the rotation that has the potential that it has and, you know, you find you know, your bullpen is going to be the glue, they, they will be in a position to win. So that that's how he looks at it. He wholeheartedly believes that this is the possibility. Look, I, I've seen Castellanos many years. I've seen Schwarber. I've a lot of Cubs. Games. These guys play hard, man. You know, there's, you're gonna have no issue, and if anything happens, they'll they'll hold themselves accountable, and the rest of the players. And and so those are very much two accountability guys. And I, and I see that uh, outfield as a result, you know, not being a problem from the standpoint of putting in the work and being prepared. Yeah, and I know um, I, I want to get your take because um, you know you. Obviously, you played in both leagues. Well, you had you played in Texas for a year, but you're generally a National League guy. It seems like Harper not thrilled about DH. You know, I know he has to because of this elbow, and he said, "Hey, if it wasn't for the DH, I wouldn't be playing." But conversely, um, I don't. It, it sounds like a lot of these guys don't like DHing. What, what do you What do you think about the DH? Yelich, by the way, Yelich is zero for four with four strikeouts when he DH the other night. He struck out two more times yeah. last night. He doesn't seem too thrilled about DHing. Part of the reason the DH has taken on, or at least took on for years, this sort of mature hitter position, like a Nelson Cruz, is because it's it's not just about like oh being a basher. It's about knowing how to manage being a DH, knowing how to stay focused when you're not in the game and you're not playing defense. That's hard. Mm-hmm. That is hard. And, it, you know, guys that are just getting there or, like, trying to play and they're still kind of young, it's it's not something they are going to be used to, especially as a national, you know, more of a lifelong national leaguer, uh, you know, you know whoever, Yelich or whatever. So you have that challenge. And, and so, yes, they're trying to do it. Ideally, especially early in the season, the rotating, okay, the, the vision was Castellanos and Harper and, and Schwerber and everybody kind of rotates. Well, they can't do that. So it's nice that Harper's in the lineup. But Harper is now a guy that's, you know, it's hard to stay engaged as much because he's not in the field. And, you know, he's a good, you know, he's a defender. He knows how to play that. So that is tough. And, you know, so the mindset is what they're going to have to work on. And then what it does is Schwarber and Castellanos to be in the lineup. They have to play every day in the outfield. And, and that's not the way they had set it up because Harper being on the field makes them a better defense. So, you know, so those are, these are the early blues that the Phillies are dealing with. They're yeah. dealing with a short spring without you know the pitchers getting where they need to be and their asset will be in the rotation but they're not really stretched out yet to do that you have a team that's trying to you know get their footing on defense and you have an injured harper who's you know limited to dh role so those are those are tough ways to start the year yeah and it's affected i guess i mean uh, they, they they probably want Hoskins to DH sometimes, Bohm to DH sometimes, so they're stronger, right. and that has kind of created some issues there. You know what made me think of you, Doug Glanville? I saw your picture with Mickey Morandini uh, on Twitter, thinking that you guys got traded for each other, and you get a chance <laughs> to kind of see the old mixer. Yeah, that was great. I mean, you know, towards the end of my career, I started to get my bat signed, you know, just by anybody and, you know, memories, and I got Mickey to sign it. And um, I'm really thankful to, you know, kind of be connected. He's an ambassador for the Phillies now. 
So it's good to see them around. And, um, yeah, so we had a good time talking about being traded for each other because it's rare you get traded for someone and then the next year you're actually teammates. That right. was weird, right? So um, so I got a chance to play with Nick. You know, worked hard, really, very well respected, great with the fans. Um, yeah, it was cool. So, I mean, so I once in a while, I've seen them, you know, every so often, Philly, and so I caught them behind the um, the rope there yesterday, and Mill Thompson was out there, so... They were taking pictures like, oh, no, Mel, you got to step out of this photo first. They won't come to you. <laughs> so, so I kicked them out of Mickey Moe. And, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's what I'm loving, man. Like, I I missed seeing all my my baseball family for those years of just being on Zoom. And I did a little Cub stuff. But to be at the park, man, every weekend is family reunion for me. And I, it's just like I, like the hitting coach of the Brewers was my roommate 30 years ago in A-ball. You know, things like that. Wow. So I'm pretty thankful that I'm in this game that long and and that it's just great to see people again. And uh, so I'm doing a lot more taking of taking pictures and savoring it. So you see me on whatever, Instagram, I like it. Twitter. I, well, I was driving in my car and heard you doing the game on Saturday. And I was like, it sounds like Doug is doing the game. And then I saw the picture and I said, definitely was Doug Landville. And that's why it made me reach out to you. But um, I want to ask because – this Mets team. Everybody at the beginning is like, ah, they're the Mets. They'll don't be the Mets. No Degrom, but this looks like finally we can trust the Mets. Should should Philly fans say, uh oh, that Mets team is actually for real? They're pretty tough. Yeah, I mean, and and it, well, I think the other side of them being tough is that their front office is dead set on getting whatever they need to win. Like they they blew through, you know, they're going to blow through luxury taxes. and all. <laughs> they're just trying to, you know, they're willing to spend the money. And, um, they, you know, certainly there's a lot of talent on the field and Scherzer and all these guys. So they're, you know, they're tough. And, you know, guys like Scherzer, they bring a certain swagger. It's, it's different. You know, when you have guys like Schwarber who won the World Series, they have a different level of expectation. And I think that's what the the Mets were missing. And then Buck Showalter, I played for in 2003, you know, he's a tactician, man. He, he gets after it. He can't outwork them. He, he loves being around the ballpark. He keeps the guys loose. He's you know, very good. We're, you know, talking to the press and under, you know, there's a lot of things that were a good fit for him in New York, being that he was a Yankee manager. He, he's very familiar. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that are good there, but you know it is. You gotta do it for 162, and you gotta stay healthy. I'll tell you what. People always question like the role of the baseball manager and how much of effect they have. But when you have a guy that's that prepared, has the team prepared for all the scenarios, all of the possibilities, I feel like you can see the Mets are much more prepared. I'll tell you what. I mean, I played in '03, and I watched the guy. I mean, this guy had spy missions for information. I mean, he just, he just, he was looking. I mean, I, I went on a rehab assignment that got, you know, hurt early in the season. And I'm in like Nowheresville, like double A somewhere coming back. He was calling every day, like, hey, what's he been doing? He knew my routine. He knew I was taking a day off. When, you know, I mean, so I'm like, don't you have a team to manage in the big league? Like, are you sure about like A Rod and Juan Gonzalez? Like, and, uh, but I appreciate it. He checked in. And he made sure you were staying on routine. So every day, I remember that year, he told me, he said, every day I wake up and I, I make like 40 phone calls, you know, throughout the organization before I even start focusing on, the, you know, just the big league team. So, you know, you know attention to detail. 
yes. is, is definitely there, and, and it seemed like that's what the Mets were looking for. Uh, but look, if Phillies are going to compete, I mean, they just have that's a lineup you, you got to be really careful with, and there's some young guys that are you know just still coming into their own. Uh, Doug Glanville, former Philly ESPN broadcast team, and of course, kind enough to join us here on the Sports Bash on ninety-seven-three ESPN. I know you had a busy day, Doug. I appreciate you taking a couple moments out. Yeah, always a pleasure, man. Anytime. All uh, right, that's Doug Glanville. Uh, he was part of the broadcast this weekend that you heard right here on 97.3 ESPN. We had the Phillies for you this weekend. We'll also have the Phillies for Sunday Night Baseball. I should ask Doug, is he going to be a part of Ask him if he'll be a part of the Sunday Night uh, Oh, never mind. <laughs> I should have asked him if he's going to be a part of the Sunday Night Broadcast this week. It's Phillies and Mets. We'll have that for you here on 97.3 ESPN, brought to you by the Sports Bash AC Airport. Plan your next vacation now and create memories to last a lifetime. Start with nonstop flights from Atlantic City to Boston, Atlanta, San Juan, Miami. Book your low-cost flight at spirit.com. I'm Mike Gill. When we come back, little NFL, Jeff Kerr, CBS Sports. Debo Samuel, the latest on what it will take to get him. And what is Todd McShay hearing about the Eagles at 15? That's coming up with Jeff Kerr from CBS Sports next. Now, Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. 5.30, Monday night. Mike Gill. I have been telling you about my friend Dr. Paul Lewis over at South Jersey Advanced Health Solutions. Funny, I had people over this weekend... They all had some allergy stuff. I was telling them about, you know, oh, my God, my allergies. I said, nothing wrong with mine. Effective treatment of anything you're allergic to. He could test you and take care of it. They specialize in allergy elimination. This is for people who have those itchy eyes and those scratchy throats, runny nose, sneezing. Why live like that? Call Dr. Paul Lewis today, 856 285 4788. It's easy to do. It's an easy, quick procedure in and out, one day, half hour or so. Make the call. Don't live with this allergy problem because it's going to get bad. It's only going to get worse. 856 285 4788. You will thank me. I promise you. I promise you'll say, you know what? I am so glad I made that call. So do it now. South Jersey Advanced Health Solutions. That's the number. That's the name. That's the number, 856-285-4788. Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. You know, we uh, were talking earlier about Debo Samuel, and uh, apparently it's going to take two first-round draft picks to uh, acquire Debo. That's about where it's going to start. So you had said earlier you'd be out on that. If you're giving up 15 and 18 to get Debo. I'm out. I'm also out on giving up a first round this year, a second round or next year, because I just don't think Debo, I, I think he's a top 10 receiver in this league. Sure. But the problem is, is one, we haven't seen him outside of Kyle Shanahan's offense. So he hasn't played in a, for lack of a term, a spread offense since college. And even that was subjective considering, you know, I forget the guy's name. Let me look it up real quick. The guy who was his college quarterback at South Carolina was still playing quarterback this past year as a six-year senior. Hmm. Well, here's the thing. The Eagles, I think, okay, I think that the Eagles are interested in taking a wide receiver at number 15. 
this is a it's kind of entered my mind okay we make the call for Debo no we're not giving up two picks to get you okay what's next I think if they stay at 15 they take a receiver if they get out of 15 it's because they traded up because somebody fell Kyle Hamilton Sauce Gardner maybe one of the defensive ends that they might like if those guys aren't in the spot that they can move up, they stay where they are. If they stay at 15, I think it's a receiver. By the way, I found it. His name was Jake Bentley. That was his quarterback of South Carolina. Bentley played for South Alabama this year. Now, you remember South Alabama because there's that wide receiver that you like, Mike. Yeah, what's his name? Um, my mind is blanked on it. All these kids' names right now getting ready for the draft. What is the kid from South Alabama's name? I was just talking about him the other day with um, with Andrew DeCecco. But I know who you're talking about. I'm, I have to pull up my article over at 973ESPN.com. Jalen Tolbert. That's his name. Yeah, Tolbert's his name. Yeah, so ironically, the guy who you were talking about last week, the same quarterback who was chucking touchdowns, the Debo Samuel of South Carolina was chucking touchdowns at Tolbert. Mm-hmm. That's how long this dude's been hanging around college football. Well, that <laughs> coupled with, so if they stay at 15, I think they're going to take a receiver. I, I'm coming to terms with the, if they stay in that spot, it's because, and they're, that means they're going to take a receiver. That's what I think. Do you think it's a receiver at 15 or yes. a receiver in that range? No, I think if they stay at 15, okay, they're going to pick a receiver. And do you feel like they're, because we know that there's a lot of reports you were talking about earlier, you know, Jamison Williams. Are you okay with them taking a Jamison Williams? Yeah, I mean, I think all the receivers, like, I don't have – they all – like, that's what we were talking about earlier in the show. The five receivers that are here, they all – it's like, what's your flavor? Do you like a guy who's a slot guy? Do you like a guy who's more speed? Do you have a guy who's more bigger and physical? There's there, – like, the one year with Judy and Ruggs and C.D. Lamb, they were all similar. Um, do you mean similar in terms of like their skill set or do you mean? Well, none of like those guys were all like, you know, none of them are like the big six two, big time targets. They're like all body types. Well, they, yeah. And like there wasn't like a lot of differentiation between what their top skill sets were. They're guys with a lot of speed, big play guys. You know, none of them was like the big physical, you know, Red zone target, right? Or... None of them were like the Julio Jones Correct. type. Not that anybody in this class is Julio Jones, but you do have different body types, right? Like Traylon Burks, to, George Pickens, right? As opposed to that draft, where all three of those guys, like if you said, "Hey, I got rugs," or "Hey, I got uh, Judy," or "Hey, I got CD Lamb," all three of those guys were, I'm saying, similar in terms of body type, skill set, like. Not one of them was like, wow, you got the 6'3 guy who's not as fast, but he's this. This one, like Jameson Williams, he, to me, would be an explosive slot guy, right? Now, I don't think you're going to go down the road of, like you made the mistake a couple of years ago with Justin Jefferson to say he could only play slot, so we're not taking him, right? I would hope not. And we also know that due to a lot of reporting that, it's becoming very clear that they picked um, – what's his name? They, they they picked Rager instead of Jefferson because of the coaching staff wanted. Because the coaching staff reportedly had designs for Rager, which obviously never came to fruition. Yeah, that didn't work out so well. So I think um, if they stay at 15 
And, of course, this will be a big topic of conversation throughout the course of this week as more information. But Todd McShay over at ESPN.com, um, he said the Eagles' preference at 15, and this is the quote from the article, multiple execs I spoke with think Alabama wideout Jamison Williams is the Philadelphia Eagles' preference at number 15. Now, it's an interesting word, preference. Because we know a lot of times with reporting, you know, I listen to, you know, Mosher and Capital and Inside the Birds a lot. And one of the things that they've talked about on Football and Four with you, Mike, and also on their podcast is about how, you know, reporting at times, you only know what you know. So, you know, you can't, if you know a team is not specifically going to draft somebody, but they would prefer to get somebody, that's maybe a way of saying the Eagles, like, he might be their number one guy on their board at a position, but maybe they know they might not be able to get him. I think it's right. A lot of smoke screens this time of the year. What so, are they, what's getting fired out that way? Well, but. You know, is how he's setting up the smoke flare because he's trying to make sure that somebody else drops to him. Well, I don't know. He said multiple executives I talked to. Right. Well, maybe how he worded it is, hey, multiple executives I speak with think that Alabama wideout Jamison Williams is the Eagles' preference. Right. Like, for example, maybe, you know, Todd knows somebody in the Saints organization. When Howie and Mickey Loomis had a conversation about trading, you know, Mickey maybe turned to Howie and said, hey, you know, if I trade this pick with you, i got to make sure I'm taking the guy that I want. And Howie says, well, who do you want? You know, Howie's maybe fishing for information. And Mickey says, well, I want this offensive lineman. Maybe he says, I want Linderbaum, right? Mm-hmm. And Howie's like, well, we're not looking to get Linderbaum. You know, we're, you know, we're looking to maybe get a receiver. And maybe Mickey fishes for information back to Howie and says. Oh, there's a lot of that going on right you now. You know what I mean? So like, maybe this is kind of like, you know, third, fourth-hand information kind of thing. So it's not that the Eagles are saying, we got to have Jamison Williams, but maybe it's. Howie says, you know, Jamison's one of the three guys we really like. You know, and look, I think a lot of these guys, when they have conversations, they talk to each other. Of course. Like, in terms of, yeah, we do like Williams. We're really hoping he's there at 15. Right. But we also like this guy, this guy. Like, I feel like these guys have enough trust and enough, like, brotherhood of we're all having these conversations. Right. And I think Howie also knows that, hey, whatever he says may get out there at some point. So maybe he's also being very meticulous about what he says to who. In the end, this is what it comes down to, too. Like, in the end, I'm taking the guy I want. I'm not taking the guy that you want because I'm trying to keep him from you. Correct. Like, if you're saying you like Jamison Williams and I'm the pick in front of you, I'm not taking him if I don't want him. Mm Mm-hmm. So what it comes down to is you might put the guy out there that you do really want. Right. And maybe enough executives are like, you know what? Knowing Howie Roseman, knowing what he's done, I think the guy, because he made the mistake the last time with Rager. Right. And now he's saying, I'm not making the mistake twice. This is the guy. He's the most talented. We're getting him, and we're going to pair him up with Devontae Smith, and we're going to have two Alabama wide receivers. Now, they didn't play together. No, they didn't. Um but the but so Alabama has came a from Ohio State and then he transferred. Yeah, Alabama has a decade plus history of producing some very good wide receivers in the NFL. So, you know, 
there is a part of if you're going to draft a wide receiver, you'd rather be from Alabama than uh, North Dakota State. <laughs> well, there is a I mean? North Dakota State player in this draft that That's could go in the first it. round. And uh, very intriguing. He's very DK Metcalfish. He is. The problem with Christian, uh, Watson. Christian Watson is that my problem with Watson is I'm a big believer, Mike, and I've I've listened to other people who know more football than me also bring this up. How does a guy produce in his situation? Is he productive because he's in a situation that allows him to be productive? Is he productive because the team's enabling him to be productive? Is he productive in spite of his situation? Like I mentioned Debo. Part of the reason why I think Debo can still be productive if he's not in Kyle Shanahan's offense is because the dude had 11 receiving touchdowns in an offense with a quarterback named Jake Bentley. South Carolina's offense for the last several years has been pretty average to below average in the SEC. Mm-hmm. So if Debo's out there getting, you know, what was it, 11 touchdowns one year and four another year, it's because he actually can play the receiver position. My problem with Christian Watson is I ask, we know North Dakota State has been a powerhouse at the FCS level. So was he productive because he was in an offense that's really good? Or was he productive because he actually is a productive receiver? Well, I'll tell you this. I think Jamison Williams, and somebody just texted in, says, I think he'll be the conversation of the best NFL receiver in his four to five years. He's 6'2", 190. I think he'll gain about 10 pounds in the NFL and become a dominant number one. If the Jets can't get Thibodeau at four and Jamison at 10, it's a home run for my guys. That's Cole and LBI. Somebody's going to be the best wide receiver in this class, and I think it's going to be a bet. Put it this way. The class we heard of two or three years ago, I guess it was, 2020, that had Ruggs and Judy, that group. CeeDee Lamb, Jefferson. Lamb, Jefferson, Rager. Jefferson ended up being the best of that group, and he was not projected to be the best of that group. And the ironic thing is the second best guy might have been the guy who won the second round with Michael Pittman. There's been a lot of guys in that draft that are better. Wasn't Debo Samuel in that draft? No, no. Debo was, was the year before. I think Debo was either 2019. Let me double check here. There was Brandon Ayuk went to San Francisco. So, yeah, that was yep. different. So, Ayuk was in that draft. Pittman was in that draft. There's another guy that went in the second round, I'm pretty sure, that got drafted. And he's better than Rager. I mean, everybody got drafted after you. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, you ended up with the worst of the worst. Debo was 2019. Right. So Debo in the second round of 2019. They got Ayuk in 2020. But um, I will say this. This is my point. Yeah. The I don't think you're going to get a player better than Jefferson, but I think the best receiver of this class will be better than the Ruggs, Judy, C.D. Lamb group. So you're saying that guy's going to be better than Justin Jefferson? No, I said I don't think someone's going to be better than. Oh, you don't think Jefferson? Okay. I what I said was I don't think someone's going to be better than Jefferson, but I think the best receiver of this crew will be better than Rugs, C.D. Lamb. Rugs is out of the league, right? Or Judy? I mean, Judy. I still think he has potential. C.D. Lamb's played pretty good. By the way, the other guy we were thinking of was T. Higgins was in that. Draft. Oh, he's been really good. So, I mean, you had some really good guys who were not the big three that you mentioned earlier. Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Hey, when we uh, leave tonight, we got game night leading you up to Sixers and Raptors. We have the game exclusively on 97.3 ESPN. Tom McGinnis on the call. 
you missed Doug Glanville, good conversation on the Phils earlier with him. More Sports Bash coming up. We'll close out the show. Coming up next. Now, Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. 549 Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Uh, Sixers tonight, they'll take on the Raptors in game number five. I need the Sixers to close this out, man. Got to close this out. Cannot go back to Toronto. And I'm not talking about because you're going to lose the series. You just do not want to prolong this series any further than it needs to go. Right? You do not want to prolong this series any longer than it needs to go. You don't want Joel Embiid out there. It's not even about his thumb. It's about everything else. I don't need him going up, falling down. The least amount of times that he – the less – that he goes up and down the court. I need him getting off the floor. They need to finish this tonight. They need to finish this series tonight, get it over with, and then get ready for the Miami Heat. Miami is a team, and I think they'll probably finish out their series. When do they play again? Miami plays. The last night was the night for Atlanta. They did not show up last night. Miami plays Atlanta tomorrow, so that series will be over tomorrow. They'll start their series on Saturday. So you'll get Philadelphia and Miami on Saturday. They got to finish this out tonight so that happens. You got to get this taken care of tonight. Uh, Sports Bash 97.3 ESPN. I see people tweeting at me, you know, that Stephen A. Smith, I guess, apparently apologized to Daryl Morey. Uh, Stephen A. Smith. Um, basically, you know, he ripped Maury saying that he lost the trade and everybody's so stuck in the moment. Okay. I'm not looking at the trade in the moment. I don't look at the deal in the moment. To me, this trade is about becoming a better team. If the Sixers can't get out of the first round of the second round of the playoffs, they didn't really get any better, right? They didn't get better. So you might say they won the trade in terms of player for player. That's not how I'm looking at the trade. I judge the trade on how deep the trade allowed you to go in the playoffs. And if you can't get out of the first round or the second round, excuse me, you're no better. So that would tell me you didn't win the trade. You were supposed to make a trade that made you better. You were supposed to make a trade that allowed you to take the team further than Ben Simmons was able to. You traded Ben Simmons away because the furthest that team was able to go was the second round of the playoffs. If you want to say James Harden is a better player than Ben Simmons, great. Then they won the player aspect of the trade. That's not my point. When I say that the Nets won the trade, it's because I think the trade still has made the Sixers short. They're not deep enough, in my opinion, to get out of the second round. So when I say the Nets won the trade, now keep in mind, Simmons not playing has certainly added a wrench to all of this. Because Simmons, I think, playing in Brooklyn that series is probably different. You might not think so. I do. Okay, we have a disagreement there. If Simmons is playing in the game and he's 
playing basketball, whether you like his game or not, just having him on that Brooklyn team, I think this is a different series that they have right now. Just in terms of how he, we know he plays, we're not asking Ben Simmons to start playing outside of his norm. What you're saying is... Just be the guy that he, did, yeah, he was in just Philadelphia. Just be the guy you've been for the last four years. Right, just be the guy that he was in Philadelphia. If he just came back and he was the guy in Philadelphia... Now, he hasn't played. So, obviously, if he doesn't play, it shifts... That Harden is helping the team win. Right. My point is, just having Harden, to me, yes, he's a better player right now than what Ben Simmons is for them. Mm-hmm. But I still don't think the Sixers get out of the second round. So you didn't win the trade. You didn't. You, you didn't improve. Just to play devil's advocate, isn't part of the reason why you don't think they got second rounds because of Embiid's hand? Not necessarily. I mean. I still think they're an underdog against the Heat, even if Embiid's 100% healthy. I think it's closer. But I still like Miami slightly better than I like Philadelphia. Because of who they have on the floor. Just I think they're a deeper team. I think that's the biggest problem with the Sixers is I don't think they're deep enough. They They definitely don't have enough depth. I don't think they're deep enough to be an NBA championship team. I don't think they're deep enough to make a deep run. To make a deep run, you have to be more than six guys. Right. And really, the Sixers, who's the sixth man? Who's the sixth guy? Yang. Right, exactly. (laughs) So people are like, well, when they made the trade, they only lost one bench guy, Drummond. But that's not necessarily the case because Simmons, if he would have been back... And that's obviously a huge wrench in this thing. He didn't play either. But you would have Drummond on the bench. That would send, you know, Danny Green back to the bench. Dybul is on the bench if Simmons is playing. Now, him not playing obviously adds a whole different layer of conversation here. But Harden has to get them out of the second round for the Sixers. And big picture, too. He has to get them out of the second round this year. And moving forward, he has to be a better player than Ben Simmons. Because, let's keep in mind, Simmons is signed for four more years. Harden is not. And if you do sign him, the money you're going to sign him for, he better be more impactful than he is right now. Sixers tonight, I think they close it out. Josh has more. Eric Edholm will join him and talk a little NFL at 620 on game night.